from the top. You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies, satirical edition. Because we're talking about our first satire, baby. I think. I don't know. Have we ever talked about a satire before? Trying to recall one. Can't. I don't think we have. All right. I don't know how many famous film satires there are. There's many of them, I suppose. But in terms of famous film satires that are just classics that everybody knows, like that we would ever do, that's you know not some political thing like Wag the Dog or something like that. A Monty Python movie. Is Monty Python. Movie. Well, of course. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Eventually. Monty, Monty Python. <laughs> Never. This is a movie today has a relation to Monty Python, if you can imagine that. I mean, they were both kind of part of the 60s counterculture. And they both came out of the 60s counterculture. Anyway, folks, you might be wondering what it was that came out of the 60s counterculture. I'll tell you. I'm going to guess that they're not wondering because they clicked on the title. I always, much like Stanley (laughs) Kubrick assumed all of humanity was idiotic morons, chest thumping (laughs) morons, barely more sophisticated than the apes they came from. That's how I think of our listeners. I think they just punch random buttons on their phone until suddenly they're listening to this. And they're like, what am I listening to? I hope he says. And so I will. <laughs> <laughs> it's Dr. Strangelove, friends. Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. One of those titles that gets used in like blog posts and like the or how I loved formulation gets mm-hmm. a lot of parody by people that are amateurs. Like, you don't just go to the New Yorker and see them parodying that title, but random blog posts and Twitter things, people like to, I think this movie actually doesn't exist as much in the popular consciousness as it should. Like, you'd think everybody on Twitter would be referencing this all the time and everybody would say, be saying precious bodily fluids and it would be a touchstone for the crazy times we live in. And maybe it is for some people, but I don't see a lot of it. You'd think you'd see more. Maybe this podcast will light the fuse Mm -hmm. that brings Strangelove back into the conversation where it belongs because this movie is prescient, baby. Movie that feels more relevant now. Not more relevant than it ever has, but at least maybe it's creeping up towards as relevant as it did. Like we've come, you were saying, after we finished watching it, Jake. Yeah, I think it's sort of like, oh, I forget how I put it, but it feels relevant. It feels like its time has returned. And specifically, I suppose we'll talk about this later, but your point specifically was that the nihilism, <laughs> the, the, yeah, well, the suicidal <laughs> ideations at the heart well, of this you, film. You, this movie is from the middle of the Cold War, right? And so you're in the Cold War, and you have this sort of pressure that doom is coming or perpetually hanging over all our heads, right? and there's nothing we can do about it. It's all machinations <laughs> on machinations on machinations that are entirely outside of our control, and all it takes is one person at the top to make the wrong move and everything goes to pieces. Right. And we face a similar kind of thing right now, just the sense that things are getting worse and more intense and collapse, infrastructure collapse feels sort of imminent with, we had the railway stuff a month or two ago. We got a banking collapse of some kind happening. We have a financial industry So we've got that side of things. We also have just this looming, at least in our circles, this looming fear or sense that, man, everything they can do to move us towards the gulags they're going to do, and it's just a matter of when, not if. And so when can they actually indict a former president simply for his conservative politics, no matter what charges they bring? And 
when can they pull that off? And when can they pull the trigger on us down the line? And how do they set things up to snowball? And can they control the elections? Can Is this all moving towards inevitable disaster for Christians in America or conservatives in America? And that's not to mention, you know, stuff going on with China and Russia and Ukraine and everything like that. Yeah, we've so literally got, got this, Russia could blow us off the map in the mix again. <laughs> yeah, or China could, using Russia as a puppet state, or China could directly, or, you know, there's all kinds of things going on where it feels like, man, this could all blow up. This could all go really, really bad. And when you live with that tension for a long time, what you want is release or catharsis. And part of the why this movie has potency and power is it's just an extended meditation on what if somebody just finally pressed the button? What if it what if they just pressed the button? Wouldn't it just it's scary, but also wouldn't that be just kind of better? Wouldn't that be a relief if somebody just pushed the button and ended all the tension mm-hmm. that we're all living with? And it takes it its own direction and plays with it and rubs your nose in your perversity as you as it goes along. Rubs your nose in your perversity from the very first shot, yeah, from which the is very a very first shot, visual yeah. joke that is a very lowbrow kind of joke and very highbrow at the same time, I guess. it's Which means if you're midbrow, it sails right over your head. <laughs> it's just planes refueling in midair for some reason. It has something to do with the plot. Well, we got to get to introducing our, the show, introducing ourselves, and actually talking about this movie. But it is fascinating to think that when this movie came out, it was the conservatives that were going to be the warmongers and going to blow it. And the people that were feeling really persecuted were the liberals. And you could take every idea in this movie and just flip flop it. Instead of, instead of having it red Russia, you have a scary conservative version of russia which russia has always been scary and conservative actually but you know what i mean and you've got the democrats in power and you've got the democrats leading us into let's blow the world off the face of the map because i've got a ukraine flag mm-hmm, yay war yay military industrial it's, it's like absolutely every facet of this movie you can just simply reverse and just plug somebody in an office somewhere saying Actually, what this all amounts to is our precious, our obsession with our precious bodily fluids, our yeah. obsession with sex. And so that's what it's all about. Well, the whole fluoridation conspiracy theory is still around, still yep. a thing, still, still a believed, thing. still maybe has a little bit of credence even. I do not believe that the communists are infiltrating our, our uh, fluoridating our water folks, but I do believe we a, do it ourselves. Yeah, I do believe there's a lot of stuff that makes us feel really bad. And act really bad and lowers our testosterone and all that stuff out there. And it's not good. So, yeah, this movie is wildly prescient. And it was, it's not really prescient because it was just like, hey, I'm going to look around. Anything that people call prescient is usually like this. It's not so much seeing the future as it's just actually looking around and accurately diagnosing the present. That's how, mm-hmm. you, that's how you see the future. That's how you make a good dystopian well, you know, sci-fi. Once you have been personally involved in faking the moon landing. Yes, what else do you have left but to cynically satirize? Which our Stanley was? Everybody and everything. Strap and yourself in, folks. The show. Three hours of moon landing <laughs> talk. And then we'll talk about the movie. No. Mm-hmm. If you don't know Jake's references, Stanley Kubrick, of course, is the person they say who filmed the moon. There's a video going around, actually, over the last several months. Maybe you've seen it, of allegedly mm-hmm. of him admitting to faking the moon landing. Yeah, he didn't no, fake the moon I haven't landing. seen it. Yeah, it's a... I love a good conspiracy theory. Theory, I most of them have proved to be true. Okay, whatever. But I think we've been to the moon. I'm. Gonna, I suspect we have too. I'm gonna plight my troth on <laughs> the fact that we've gone to the moon. I'm plighting. 
I'm just assuming that we have without, <laughs> without, bothering, thinking... without bothering to even look at the conspiracy. All right, Ben. You're just supporting Coca-Cola. That's right. You're just bad guano. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> My favorite character. <laughs> that guy, the son of Edwin. Edwin being Uncle Albert from Mary Prince Poppins. Albert in the can. Yeah, Prince Albert in the can. Edwin is like he. I love to laugh. The most forgettable yeah. scene in that whole. No, movie. I love that scene. I don't think it's forgettable at all. I think about it every day. I remember it like the chosen, not the chosen. What's that like thing the where chosen? They, what was the thing where they have to remember things? It's a yeah, YA thing. novel, like The Giver. Oh, okay. I want to carry. I love to laugh forward with me to the next generation. So cool. I want to pass it down. Anyway, folks, we are sanity at the movies. I am Nathan, your humble and obedient host. That's Ben. He's the preacher who's a teacher of cinema. There you go. How you doing, Ben? I'm all right, Nathan. Uh, that's good. Why don't you introduce the other gentleman? It's Jacob Mensel, the pastor who's a master of cinema. That's me. Folks, we this got... Is... What's it? What? I didn't say anything. Oh. He acknowledged that I, in fact, that am who, yeah. I, who he said I was. Yeah, okay. I did. I sure did. <laughs> Jake is who he is. I nailed that acknowledgement, buddy. <laughs> yep. The moon landing happened. <laughs> oh my goodness all right we're talking about dr strange love a classic it's a classic i'm not going to qualify that at all so your enjoyment level might vary depending on where you are at life in life what your sense of humor is how much patience you have for stanley kubrick wanting to put you in the hell of the long process that they would go through before blowing us off the face of the <laughs> world <laughs> Stanley Kubrick really enjoys people messing around with machines at length, which Ben has a theory about that he'll share with you at some point yep. in this podcast. I do imagine. Gentlemen, what is your Stanley Kubrick baggage, your Dr. Strangelove baggage, your whatever, your baggage with Peter Sellers? What baggage do you have with this film? I hate 2001 A Space Odyssey. I've never watched it and enjoyed it at the same time, but I have watched it. Um, have you also enjoyed it no, while not, not watching even, it? No, not even after watching it, not even in theory. There's nothing I have ever been able to bring myself to enjoy or appreciate about that movie, even the things that I feel like I should be able to appreciate. I just don't. I just can't. I just hate it too much. Well, you famously had the organ of wonder removed from <laughs> your body, so <laughs> what are you going to do? Or... or <laughs> I just don't need or experience it from that movie. <laughs> Your choice, listener. You I. This is what I would say. If there was ever a screening in Evansville, like on a big screen, like in an IMAX theater or something like that, I think that is a movie that you could go and I bet even you, even you, Jake. Even me. Could, even, uh, even a mid-brow idiot. If you just plead. had the experience of I have to watch this, I cannot look at my phone, I must give myself to it, I must be enveloped by it. I think it probably would end up winning me. Winning you and enveloping you. Not that I'm saying you have to do that or you should do that. But I think that. I think it's impossible to watch it without pulling out your phone. Yeah. Otherwise. That's why you have to be in a theater and you just have to be like, ah, you have to be studying the fur on those monkey costumes. No. Nope, I, I did it's it so I, long and it, so boring on purpose. Yeah. And I just feel, you, you know, you get the sense early on that the director hates you. When I feel that, I just, it's really hard for me. I can't enjoy Ryan Johnson. He's a great filmmaker, but I just feel he hates me so much that I just, it's just really hard to enjoy anything he does. I did enjoy Knives Out, but I don't know. I, just, I, I feel like Stanley Kubrick hates you and God and everything in the world. 
and wants it to burn and wants you to suffer while he tells you how much he hates you and the world and God. He wants you to sit there and suffer and be bored with how stupid God is and how stupid God's world is. And it's just like, man, it's just like, I just can't, could not, cannot stand that movie. I really appreciate that take. As someone who likes 2001, I think your take's great. Yep. I think the movie's great too, but I like your take. I mean, I think, well, we're not here to do a 2001 podcast. We let Jake not even do that 2001 podcast. Which I very much appreciate. (laughs) Yes. One of the great favors done in the sanity of the movie history. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but me and Venture to talk for two and a half hours about. <laughs> we did. It was fun. Man has created machines and they're driving us towards it. We, we had a grand old time. Yeah, we did. I have to feel uh, like a director's hatred and nihilism is fair. And with Stanley Kubrick, I feel like it is. Strange Love is the perfect example. It punches up, it punches down, it punches sideways, it punches everywhere. Yeah, I've never felt the same way about Strange Love as I have about 2001. I've never resented that movie or felt assaulted by it in the same way. I felt sideways to it. Yeah. In a different way. And I, I can't, I don't know, maybe we'll, I'll be able to put my finger on why in the course of this discussion. But I felt it's sort of like the documentary that we watched uh, not Gates, long of ago, Heaven, Gates yeah. of Heaven. When Gates of Heaven started, I really was digging it. And by the time it was over, I hated it very much. I had the same sort of giggle thrill from the title screen, this go around with Dr. Strangelove. But in this case, it never went away. And maybe that says something, maybe I'll decide it says something about me or about my mood or my state of mind or my view of the world or something like that. But I mean, one very simple thing to say about that, I don't think this gets at everything or dives deeply into your psychology, but Strangelove is a comedy and it does have a intentional distancing effect that, that any good comedy, I mean, you have to be able to take a step back in order to laugh. And he really does a good job of maintaining that that distance, that balance. You're never expected to yeah. really engage emotionally mm-hmm. with this movie, which is actually not the same as Gates of Heaven, which oh, no. is supposed to move you to something profound about the human condition. And once it starts doing that, that's when you that's start when to I really resent off. it. Yeah, and hate it. Yeah, and I feel like, man, there's something just philosophically preachy about 2001 that's just not there in this one either. I just, I just enjoyed it. I just had fun. And maybe part of it was being able to be in a room with other people who get the humor and we're laughing along. It definitely helps to watch this movie with people who are laughing or to watch any comedy with people who are laughing. Yeah, and not every level of comedy is going to hit with every crowd. So your mileage may vary if you're watching this movie with the guys or with your wife or something, or with certainly with your kids. I think probably a movie that's, if I can stereotype and generalize a little bit, not beloved by women. A, there's no... Women characters, which does make a difference. Well, there is one very yes. significant. Well, there character. is one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she explains why it's not beloved by yes, women. She's uh, there for a very specific purpose, and uh, she achieves that purpose, and it is funny, but it's not particularly flattering. Flattering, <laughs> flattering to the. <laughs> you will not be flattering. You will not be flattering. <laughs> <laughs> no flatterations here. <laughs> There's some coarse jesting and stuff like this in this movie, but. Everywhere you turn, there's a giant phallic symbol or phallic uh, symbols and mm -hmm. scantily clad women in pictures. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it also, I don't know. Every serviceman's got his playboy or centerfolds tucked away. I think women can be funny. I think women are often funny. I know many funny women, but I think irony is primarily designed for men. I think men like irony better, whatever, or whatever you want to say. Especially about something as heavy as, I don't know. 
nuclear annihilation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, historically speaking, and even now, men are the ones that are going to go and the wind blew down your power line. And this we're, is we're about the be... tensions that men are made to to bear. And gallows humor is a way that we their handle those. wives and children. Yeah. And th- these are the types of things that our wives are never supposed to have to think about or be worried about. Mm. And so you carry those tensions yourself as a man. You carry the responsibility in as far as you can. You protect your family from it. And then when you're with the guys in the locker room, you make your jokes about it. And this is, a, this is yeah, gallows humor, locker room kind of movie, which doesn't mean that you know a woman can't appreciate it. It's just that it's definitely for the people who are made to feel the tension, the weight of the world. And who already feel it. A woman watches this movie and she's like, oh. It creates tension. The world could get blown up. That's really <laughs> sad and dark. I don't like that. And men are like, yeah, I already knew the world was going to blow up. And yeah, it's going to be kind of funny if the world blew up. <laughs> kind of would be a relief, actually. Kind of would be a relief. Yeah. <laughs> Wildly generalizing, but I think generalizations are generally true. So, Jake, your baggage with Kubrick and with this movie is basically, if I'm understanding right, you hate 2001, you like Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, I think that's basically it. And you're obviously a huge fan of Eyes Wide Shut, Clockwork Orange. These Never are some seen of, them. Some of your favorite films. Ben, your baggage, sir. I th- Let's see. I saw both of those movies. Clockwork Orange and Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, right. All those met multiple times. No, never. I don't think I've watched a single other, not even Spartacus. I'm, I haven't seen Spartacus. I'm not sure if I've seen another. Name. I haven't oh, seen I've Spartacus. Seen... See what I did I've there, folks? Seen... If you know Spartacus, you know I just made an uh, okay joke. <laughs> I don't know how okay it was. Uh, no, it's fantastic. I've not seen Full Metal Jacket either. I've not seen nope. The Shining. I've not seen... In, I've, I've just, seen most of The Shining. I've not seen Lolita. Most of all The Shining. Uh, minus some sex stuff, The Shining is great. I mean, if, if that's what you want. Full Metal Jacket, I think, is just a bad movie. But you didn't ask me to litigate his entire... Corpus. Corpus. Oeuvre. <laughs> Oeuvre. Oeuvre. I think I've seen all of them, actually. Well, I haven't seen... He did some early stuff. Like, I haven't seen his juvenilia, but I've seen everything from The Killing on. Ben, but you were saying. Oh, I was saying. I think I saw Dr. Strangelove in my 20s, mm-hmm. maybe late teens, and then 2001, the same. And was mildly amused by Strangelove. Was definitely bored by 2001. Did not have any interest in Kubrick. Felt like I was watching a filmmaker who was above my head, ahead of me, in a way that's interesting, but I wasn't interested, if that makes any sense. He's just like, yeah, this guy's clearly some kind of master. Well, the knock against Kubrick, the thing that people that don't like Kubrick say is, he's very respectable, he's obviously an immense talent, but he is intentionally holding you at arm's length and not letting you in. (sighs) And that's just what people say about all of his movies. Like He always wants to take a God's eye view of things, and that's actually no fun. Well, he's cold and he's inviting you to be cold with him. And it's like, you better figure out my program or I don't want your sympathies. I don't want your emotions. I don't want to, I don't want you to be entertained unless you're going to be entertained the way that I'm entertained. Otherwise, you'll find me looking down on you all the time. And that's how Kubrick is. I remember seeing bits of The Shining on TV. Never a horror movie guy, but The Shining is so interesting, visually, mm-hmm. just compelling, just creates this bizarre mood that I always was tempted to turn on the old TBS <laughs> well, it's watch, not, well, watch bits of it. It is so abstracted that right. it, it, it is just, just I don't weird. actually think it's And every it's time you see scary. a clip of Jack in it, he's crazy compelling. It's He is. He's you just want to watch. magnetic and he's unleashed to be just sort of insanely magnetic. Well, and it's just for a guy that's so famous for being dispassionate and cold, he does it with George C. Scott here. It's ridiculous. It's like, uh, go bigger, go bigger, go bigger. You got George C. Scott doing stunt fall body comedy. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> Which George C. Scott hated. George C. Scott did not like 
this performance. He said, Kubrick tricked me. Kubrick, he said, Kubrick yep. would always say, this. Do, the norm, do a normal take. And then, oh, just for fun, let's do an over-the-top take at the end. And then Kubrick used mostly Every those single takes. Over. And I think it's brilliant. I think there are people that can go over the top. George C. Scott's one of them. Jack Nicholson's another one. I think George C. Scott walks away with this movie, and I think most people would agree. But yeah, yeah. everybody's great. Obviously, Sellers is great. Obviously, Sellers is great. Jack the Ripper <laughs> is great. Sellers is awesome. He really is. Something. He's, he's so amazing. Good. Yeah, he's, he's so good. <laughs> well, he's, he's amazing. And I, I think this, unlike two thousand one, what you have too are all these little parts, these little pieces, these little characters and character bits. Yes, that, that helps that, a lot. That really helps and humanizes and brings some warmth to a really cold desolate nihilistic movie the pilot is awesome and mm. fun peter sellers is amazing playing off of sterling hayden yeah <clears throat> who's really fun and weirdly sympathetic actually brings some real pathos to <laughs> yeah, that yeah it's just role. like and then you just keep cutting to george c scott in his chewing gum and <laughs> mm-hmm. and then you cut back to peter sellers and he's got a He's got chewing gum, but he won't put it in his mouth. He's just going to play with it. It's yeah, like a, this running a joke. A chewing gum motif that runs through this film. <laughs> so many motifs. So many motifs. It's yes. It's, yeah. I, so I was going to say, at some point, I, my friend, show, who's a big Kubrick fan and a big apologist for 2001 and stuff, in a way that was fun, like the kind of guy like you want to watch something like that with and have him, have him tell you why it's so cool and interesting. And Anyway, we, I watched Barry Lyndon with him. And at that point, I was like, this movie's kind of awesome. I was just ready for it. Barry Lyndon is one of the ba- most- actually, Barry Lyndon would be the other satire that you right. could see us doing. I mean, it also is one of the most repellent movies ever made. And I don't mean evil, I mean like it repels you. Like yes, it, it does not want to let you in well, at all. But as soon as you process, wait a minute, this is all comedy, I'm supposed to be like laughing. Uh, yeah. It the, the, if that clicks when you watch it. Except for some sexually explicit stuff, it's a f- it's almost fun would be the wrong word, but it's entertaining is almost the wrong word. It's entertaining. Gives but you if, a brain tickle. But if it doesn't, yeah, a brain tickle, a brain tickle. But if it doesn't click, then you're just like, what? I'm sure that Why would be horrible. Am I watching this? But well, as soon as you process though, that it opens it's just like with ASMR this. stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like you either you either get, you either get it or, or you don't. I've gotten it. <laughs> it either once happens or, to you or it doesn't. And once in my life, it did. And man. I want to go back there, baby. It was good. But usually it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it can be just nails on a chalkboard. Well, I do, I think it's, I do always think it's funny that it's a cute chick with a hairbrush or something that she's moving her fingers over. And I'm like, I think there might be another thing that people <laughs> like about this. Anyway, Ben. Barry Lyndon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Barry Lyndon is just the most sharp-edged sort of evisceration of Barry Lyndon and his the people around him and just down to the fact that he cast an actor that he clearly doesn't like that doesn't know Absolutely. what movies he's in that's giving a different perform like that thinks he's giving a performance as, like as a hero and Kubrick's tricking him into giving a performance as a buffoon. I mean, it is well. Just he, a, I mean, he chose an actor who is a completely crummy actor. I don't remember his name. Ryan O'Neill. Yeah, who was famous for a movie I've never seen called Love Story, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be a horribly Cr- crummy romantic very movie. cheesy and manipulative well, love means never having to say you're sorry that's right yeah, yeah yeah that was the line i was trying to think of so he brings this guy who's a block of wood basically like vaguely handsome mm-hmm. into this movie <laughs> about an evil fool <laughs> a narcissist <laughs> and yeah it well anyway if you watch it you got to watch out for this one scene but barry Lyndon 
So I won't say that made me want to watch Kubrick. It made me actually enjoy that Kubrick movie. So uh, yeah, that's it. My baggage is, I saw a lot of these movies when I was young. I think my dad, I don't know, he wasn't like a Kubrick fan, but he, it was just like, if you're at the library or the video store and you see 2001 or Strange Love or one of these, you're like, oh yeah, we should get that and watch it. So I remember watching Strange Love like as a family, I think. It really feels weird. like maybe that memory got corrupted <laughs> somehow, but that's what I remember. Same thing for 2001. I remember, but both of these I watched when I was just old enough to be wanting to get past Spielberg and find who else was out there. Kubrick's one of the guys you quickly discover as a budding cinephile, A, because he's provocative and going to go to some dark places, which is always intriguing for a young man. Also, because like we've talked about with Hitchcock or Spielberg, you can catch him doing stuff. Like you can see a visual design, you can see an authorial hand. Mm -hmm. And so it's fun to learn about cinema. We just read the book by Sidney Lumet and talked about it, I think actually over on our other podcast, Sound of Sanity, but we sent it out as a reward on this one. And you go and you watch a Lamette movie, and maybe you'll catch some stuff because- It's a fantastic book. It's, I, it's a wonderful book. More people should sign up for that level if that's the quality of stuff we're sending. Yeah, it is, saying. and you should. And patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies, we could use your support to keep this show going, especially now. But yeah, that, then you go and you watch a Lamette movie, and you don't catch him doing anything. And you, maybe you do because you read the book, but you wouldn't have caught it if you hadn't, because it's just- Lamette's still staying out of the way. That's the whole thing. He just wants to tell the story. Kubrick's not actually like that. Kubrick's more like a Hitchcock. He's like a Hitchcock. Like the part <laughs> of the, it's not just about what story I'm telling. It's about how I'm telling the story. You're supposed to notice the shots and the. You're coming to a Stanley Kubrick joint here. Right. Yeah. That's supposed to mean something to you. And some people. I want that to mean something to you. I want you to come. I want to be the star of this. You're not going to a Cary Grant film. You're not going to a Jimmy Stewart film. You're coming to a Stanley Kubrick film. Yeah. And then some people don't like that. They want the author to stay out of the way when they read a book. They don't, they don't like in Narnia when C.S. Lewis is like, now let me explain to you dumb children about Narnia. I always have really loved the author inserting himself anywhere he can. I like it in books. I like it. In, I mean, it can be coy and stupid. When it's badly done, it's badly done. But when it's well done... When it's like Midnight's Children is a good example of something we read on the book, which where he's just showing off. He's a young man writing a novel and he's showing off the whole time. And because he's good, you really appreciate it. If he was bad, then it would be excruciating. Mm-hmm. But Kubrick is a show off, and I like that about him actually. And I liked it then, and I like it now. Um, you know, we want a big zoom in on Doctor Strange Love that says, "Hey, it's Doctor Strange." This like nudging you in the ribs, like it's Doctor Strange Love now. He's coming out of the shadows. Nothing subtle about it. So, yeah, that's my bad. In the end, the Nazis win. In the end, the Nazis win. Yes, they do. They come out of the shadows. And <laughs> They've are been reborn. there all along. <laughs> yep. They've been crippled, but <laughs> even that will go away. <laughs> They'll uh, regain their power after we've destroyed ourselves. <laughs> I remember being really excited about Kubrick. I remember renting all his VHSs from the library, pretending to be sick from school, watching them all. Even the bad ones, maybe especially the bad ones, if I'm being honest, because I was just like, wow, it was like I, I had gotten a little whiff of a drug and I wanted some more. Like this this guy just feels like pure cinema in a way that I'm not used to. I was just, you know, watching whatever the pop entertainment of the time was. And so I, I'm sentimental for him. He did a lot of stuff that we'll never cover on this podcast and that I won't go back to even now personally, because it's just you don't need. Nobody needs Clockwork Orange in their life. Even Kubrick kind of 
pulled Clockwork Orange from distribution, <laughs> got guilted into it. So hmm. let's talk about Dr. Strangelove. I'll give a little rundown on the making of the movie. And then, Ben, you have some broader sociopolitical context for us. I do. So Stanley Kubrick, Jewish dude. Jewish dude. His dad was a homeopathic doctor. They were pretty well-to-do for New York Jews. Everybody always thinks Stanley Kubrick's British just because he's a well-regarded auteur kind of filmmaker that was known for taking his time and all that, so he must be British. But when you hear him talk, he's got he actually kind of sounds like the president in this movie, the accent that Sellers is doing. It's just I'm doing it up a little bit or New Yorking it up a little bit, but it's got that kind of flat Eastern quality to it. He just sounds like this. He's got a very formal kind of repartee. But he's this little Jewish kid, well-to-do, hates school, does not for a guy, and again, for a director that, like the premier intellectual of all, these playing these abstract intellectual games. He's famous for playing chess with his actors. He didn't do well in school, actually. But he joined a photography club and ended up really getting into photography. And then as World War II ended, he, not that he went, I think he was too fat and shy and nerdy to go to World War II, slash it ended right at the right time that he didn't have to. But he ended up becoming a photographer for Look Magazine. Look Magazine being not as naughty as it sounds, it was actually a competitor to Life Magazine. So Life, if people don't know what Life Magazine is or Look Magazine, they were like the arbiters of Americana, you know, the famous shot of Neil Armstrong on the moon or all those iconic 20th century kind of shots come from Life Magazine, which was just a photo magazine, like it didn't actually have a lot of text. It just had pictures of this is a life. This is the a day in the life of the American housewife, or a day in the life of the construction worker, or here's JFK getting off the plane, is that kind of thing. So Kubrick became a pretty well-regarded photographer for that ma- for Look Magazine, which was a competitor to Life, and you can find books of his photographs, and they're beautiful black and white photographer. And he raised his own money for a 16-minute boxing documentary. He just got into cinema because he went and saw things and he was absolutely compelled by the mechanical elements of the puzzle piecing of filmmaking. He would watch a movie and his friends would say like he would not actually be involved in the plot. He would check out during the movie because he'd been thinking about how did they get that shot or what do they do or how do they edit these together? He was really fascinated by the technical aspect of filmmaking, which you can imagine because in the movie we're about to watch, arguably one of the dings against it at least for somebody who wants an entertaining time is because is that there's so much technical minutia that you have to put up with that gets a little boring and there might be a larger strategy to that. We'll talk about it, but Kubrick, a technical dude. So he makes a 16 minute boxing documentary called day of the fight that leads to him working his way into actually making movies, making small independent films. And then pretty early in his career become, well, not super early in his career, becoming his own producer and getting final cut. So he is one of those guys that once he started making his masterpieces, he had and he demanded full control over them. And you're seeing what he wanted and nobody was messing with it. But the way that he was able to achieve that was by being relatively successful. He never made blockbusters like Spielberg made, but he worked his way up making genre pieces and things that people would go see. So He made 13 films. Two of them are warm-up movies. And then 11 of them, you could argue they are the masterpiece of their respective genres. So he made The Killing in 1956, which a lot of people will say is the best 
film noir. I don't actually think it is, but it's in the running. He made Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas in 1957, which a lot of people will say is the best anti-war film ever made. He made Spartacus in 1960, which a lot of people will say is the best. I don't actually agree with any of these. I mean, I'm just saying you can make a plausible argument about it. A lot of people say it's the best epic, at least until uh, Gladiator came along. Then he made Lolita, which wasn't considered. Nobody would say that's the best of anything, but he did ma- figure out how to adapt an absolutely impossible novel that no one thought that you could adapt. So he did Lolita in 62, and then he did Dr. Strangelove, which is one of the best, I think is the best satirical film ever made. I don't know that you could name another one, period. <laughs> I also don't know that you could name a better one. If More Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon, but sure. But very different kind of movie. Yeah, but that's not different kind of satire, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then he made 2001, universally agreed to be the best hard sci-fi film or best whatever it is. Whatever Star Wars is, 2001's the other kind of thing. and. It's the best of that. Clockwork Orange, people say, is the best dystopian film. Barry Lyndon, the best period drama, period satire. The Shining, the greatest horror movie of all time. Full Metal Jacket, the best Vietnam movie. It's not the best Vietnam movie by a long shot. None of these are. But, you know, it's in the running. And then he did Eyes Wide Shut, and which was a Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman erotic thriller, and he died before completing that. But... The thing to the things to notice about Kubrick are the incredibly precise technical detail of the way that he composes his shots. He was very fond of something called one point perspective, which is where it's always impossible to describe this on the podcast. But if I had a whiteboard, I could show you, dear listener. You can look it up. There's a vanishing point. There's a, so the Last Supper, the painting by Da Vinci, is a perfect example of one point perspective, where the camera is on the same level as the people and it's just looking straight at them and there's a vanishing point on a horizon line and everything is point so basically jesus is the vanishing point of the horizon line in that painting and the apostles are organized or the disciples at that point are organized across the vanishing line and they're all perfectly symmetrical and everything is pointing towards it's it's like a a perfect shot of a train track i don't know look up one point perspective but if you've seen any of Kubrick's work, you know what I'm talking about because he has these very symmetrical shots, these very precise planned camera movie movements. He was famous for doing take after take after take after take, 50 takes to get what he wanted. He was precise. He was a control freak. He was very nitpicky. And I think the interesting thing about that that's worth noting is where Somebody like Hitchcock does 50 takes and is very controlling because he's already made the movie in his head and he just wants to get you to replicate that. I think Kubrick, we could actually give him the grace to say he wanted to be surprised. He wanted to find something authentic. He wanted you to play. And so with the Sellers performance in this movie, it's like he's not making Sellers do robotic stuff. He's letting Sellers improvise and stuff. He's just doing 50 takes until he gets the improv that he wants. And so a lot of actors actually really did like working with him. Jack Nicholson in The Shining liked working with him and was allowed to just go nuts. But the story of this movie, very briefly, after Kubrick finishes making Lolita and he cannot stop thinking about the nuclear holocaust, he says he's been worried about being blown up by an atom bomb since making Lolita. And so Kubrick, being this very fastidious sort of OCD guy, goes and reads like 50 books on nuclear war, on nuclear proliferation, all this stuff. And the one that finally catches his eye is this fictional book called Red Alert, which is not a comedy. It's just a 
It's a guy that actually used to be a pilot in the army. And the guy's like, I've seen what the processes are. And like, I think there's a plausible way that this could all go wrong. Pretty much exactly what happens in the movie. And so he just writes a novel. The novel gets a little traction. And Kubrick hires this guy whose name is Peter George, who wrote the novel to work on a screenplay for a drama film about the end of the world, basically about what happens in the movie. And the way that Kubrick described it is that they were just working late into the night and they would think of silly things. They would start to come up with absurd stuff just to keep each other awake. And eventually they realized, wait a second, this is a comedy. That's this. And the author of the original novel, Peter George, had no problem with that. He was happy for this movie to be comedic. He immediately saw that would actually be the best way to get this material to an audience in a way that would hit. And so they did some crazy early drafts. There was actually a pie fight that made it into the screenplay and into the production. Originally, this movie ends with everybody in the war room throwing pies at each other. Wisely, they cut that out. (laughs) But you can actually spot pies in the background of certain shots. I think when the Russian guy walks in, there's pies there that are just waiting for. There's also an early draft where it's all from the point of view of aliens who come and observe the world and are like, what happened to this? burnt husk of a world and they're trying to piece it together so they actually went even bigger but they wisely landed where they landed and kubrick brought in a guy that some people may have heard of called terry southern who is an author of a novel called the magic christian and this guy was a big counterculture guy he was kind of a bad boy expatriate dude who was in the war and then was part of parisian cafe society in the late 40s and early 50s where all the beautiful people gathered and talked about art, the counterculture, and beat poets, Allen Ginsberg, people like this were all part of this movement. So this guy's associated with bebop jazz and beat poetry and the sexual revolution. And he went from Paris to Greenwich Village, that whole art scene in New York. And he wrote this novel called The Magic Christian, which is this anti-capitalist novel about an extremely wealthy man who uses his money to play jokes on people. And this man's premise is that everyone has their price. And so he goes from situation to situation and then buys people and makes them do ridiculous things. And the novel is just this series of episodes where things like that happen. It sounds very tiresome. I've not read it, but apparently people thought it was pretty funny. Ha ha ha. Everybody's got their price. Everyone could be bought. Ha ha ha. You can do zany things with the evil capital that you've accrued. So Kubrick felt like this guy was on his wavelength. So he brought him in. And they wrote this script and their reigning theory of how they were going to do things is they would just ask, what is the most outrageous thing that people can say or do and still be credible? And so up until Dr. Strange love himself, everything was meant to be credible. And I think the movie more or less walks that line pretty well. I mean, we could litigate it, but a lot of the stuff that's incredible made it in through improvisation. I mean, I don't think any of the hand stuff, any of Dr. Strangelove fighting his mechanical hand was actually in the (laughs) script. That's just sellers goofing off. And obviously they were smart enough to realize we should keep it. (laughs) A couple other things about this movie. Ken Adams designed the wonderful sets, the war room, everything like that. Ken Adams was famous for the James Bond pictures of Dr. No and Goldfinger. And if you think about those early James Bond movies, and they'll always have these massive like Blofeld's lair with a bunch of hundreds of functionaries running around and these vast evil complexes where bad guys plot to take over the world. That's what Ken Adams is most famous for. And so of course Kubrick needed him 
to design the war room, which took over 10 miles of electrical cable just to light. Uh, they also had to imagine what a B-52 was like. As much detail as this movie lavishes on its B-52, the military didn't want anything to do with this movie for obvious reasons. So they were not allowed to film or even photograph inside a B-52. So that B-52 is all just <laughs> their best guess, which is probably pretty good because Kubrick was technically very adept and understood what he was doing. This, the other interesting thing, Sidney Lamette, the guy that wrote the book, was mounting a production of a film Sydney called- Sidney Lamette? Yes, that's correct. No, he no. didn't. Oh, you mean the film book. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant the novel. Yeah, no, yeah. the guy that wrote yep. the book we were talking about. Yep. He yep. was actually hired to mount a production of a movie called Failsafe. Failsafe, as you can tell by the title, is actually a very similar plot to Dr. Strangelove. So similar that the author of the book, Red Alert, that Strangelove is based on, sued the author of the book Failsafe and won, or at least settled out of court. He, he and Kubrick sued him together. Or they sued publishing company or something. Well, they had already sued the book. The book had already had a separate lawsuit, I believe. But then Kubrick and Kubrick sued to try and get this movie shut down, the Lamette movie, because he was just like, you guys are going to steal our thunder. You're going to you're making our movie less profitable through this a book that was already stolen from our book. That movie has Henry Fonda and a bunch of great actors. And Sidney Lamette was a very prestigious director. And that was the movie that everybody had their eye on. Like, when Disney was working concurrently on The Lion King and Pocahontas, and everybody wanted to work on Pocahontas because that was going to win all the Academy Awards, be Disney's next sort of step after Beauty and the Beast. But they were all wrong. The dork dorky little lion story was the one that is the best. And so nobody remembers Failsafe. I don't think Failsafe made any money. Nobody cares about Failsafe. One of Lamette's failures, one of Henry Fonda's big failures. But Strange Love. Made money, was very successful. Peter, people loved Peter Sellers, and I think he brought him in. And there was just a burgeoning counterculture movement that felt seen and heard by this movie. And like Jake was talking about, it, it tapped into something. It tapped into a real sense of, hey, let's just start over. I suppose the last thing that I want to talk about is Peter Sellers. Interesting dude. Tragic, sad, tortured genius kind of a dude born richard henry sellers and his mother called him peter because his older brother who was stillborn was named peter biographers like to make a lot of hay out of that from the very first moment of this life this guy was asked to play the role of someone else and to exist as someone who he was not you've got to be peter your dead brother and his mother who was a british vaudeville performer coddled him into adulthood, they had what everyone agreed was a really unhealthy relationship. To maybe to get away from her, he joined the RAF, which is where the characterization of what's his face Mandrake comes from, and where his gift for mimicry comes from because he would learn he learned to mimic all his superior officers. Like the Mandrake impression is one of his earliest ones because he just liked to make fun of those guys. But he got out and he decided he was going to be a drummer. So he worked around the vaudeville circuit as a drummer. It became more of a mimic. And the story, I don't know whether this is true, but the story is he called the BBC and impersonated some famous celebrities of the time and said, I say you should really give that Peter Sellers chap a, a chance in character as somebody that the BBC <laughs> respected. 
And it worked. And he got cast on a radio show called The Goon Show, which is really an important show, actually, even though nobody's heard of it in the States and it's not a big, it hasn't really lasted in our cultural consciousness, at least. But it is the primordial ooze from which sprang Monty Python, from which sprang the Beatles, John Lennon, and all those guys, their whole sense of sort of counterculture, mop top, rebellion, and zany, absurdist humor comes directly from the goon show and sellers wasn't the principal guy on the goons goon show that'd be spike milligan but sellers was the most beloved guy in the goon show because he did all these little supporting characters and he was famous for doing what he does slipping in and out of you know 19 different characters in a show that led to him being hired in a movie called the lady killers which is a pretty good movie famously remade by the coens and Tom Hanks in a terrible oh, man. remake. Talk about a genuine slug. Yeah, it's just an awful movie. But the original has Alec Guinness, and Alec Guinness's big thing, people don't remember this, they just remember him as Obi-Wan Kenobi, but his big thing in the 50s was he could slip in and out of any character. He, was actually, he did a movie called Kind Hearts and Coronets where he plays eight or nine different characters. And Alec Guinness was a big hero for Sellers precisely because of his ability to do that sort of thing. And so Sellers became that and worked his way up. And he did a movie called The Mouse That Roared, where he played Grand Duchess Gloriana, Prime Minister Count Rupert Mountjoy, and Tully Bascombe. And at that point, the Americans all decided Peter Sellers was brilliant. This guy's awesome. Meanwhile, in Britain, they're like, this guy's some twitty guy from the radio that we don't respect. But we all decided Peter Sellers was awesome. Was great. And then he has three roles in this. He didn't play slip another one past me, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. No. Originally he was gonna sure. he was going to play the Slim Pickens part, but okay. there are various stories as to why he didn't do that. But in nineteen sixty three, another American, Blake Edwards, casts him as Inspector Clouseau in a little movie called The Pink Panther, and then it's all over. He's a giant international star. Those movies made a billion dollars. Everybody loved the Pink Panther series. Ah, do you guys like those Pink Panther? Never movies. saw them actually. They're weirdly tedious in they're their kind way. Of tedious, they're yeah. they're super sexual. Like I watched saw a bunch of them as a kid just because my parents had fond memories of them. Yeah. There's some really funny scenes, stuff that kids would love, and it's just great. And then there's all this other stuff that's like either boring or gross or weird, or you're just like, What am I watching? Yeah. This is weird. Yeah, Peter Sellers is awesome. The thing about Peter Sellers in all of his roles is that he does not seem to he does not beg you for laughs. Like he's willing to just be the character. It's what makes this movie so interesting is that the president feels like a pretty plausible, not a comic caricature, but just the president. He speaks with a certain amount of authority. I mean, and still he becomes more buffoonish as the plot requires him to. But Peter Sellers is just inhabiting a straight character, especially when George C. Scott is doing all of his stuff. The president is just the straight man. I mean, I think so much of the time when people talk about people that slip in and out of different characters, what they're actually saying is, hey, wasn't it fun to see Johnny Depp pretend to be a pirate? But we all saw Johnny Depp in there. That was the fun of it was, it's Johnny Depp. He's thinks he's a pirate now. He's doing an accent. But Sellers just, it sounds corny to say it, I guess, but Sellers just is. He just becomes, he just is like Mandrake and Strange Love and the president, they just all feel not like Saturday Night Live characters or Mike Myers in the Austin Powers movie. I'm doing a character now. But no, it's just like, there's the president. There's this other guy. You just, you don't catch Peter Sellers under them. And Peter Sellers always 
said, I do not have a personality. There is nothing to me. I am an empty vessel. I do not even remember who I am. I am only what I play. And he was bipolar. He was paranoid. He had all these mommy issues. He had a lot of difficult marriages. He was extremely abusive to women. And there's a lot of drama with his children who eventually wrote very popular tell-all books about how awful he was. I think he left both of his two children a thousand bucks each and left the most of his fortune to his fourth wife or something like that. And people will try and litigate it different ways and say he was in the process of changing his will when he had his heart attack at 54 or something like that. But he wasn't a very pleasant guy. And he wouldn't have been a very funny guy to meet on the streets, you know, or to interact with at a party or something like that. He just could slip into these marvelous characters, but apparently very empty kind of a man. I mean, of course, that's also all part of the legend. So who knows? That's Peter Sellers. He was going to play the Captain Kong part. There are different stories as to why he didn't do that. Some people say he just couldn't get the accent. Other people say he just didn't want to be in the stuck in the plane set, claustrophobic plane set. In any case, they got Slim Pickens, whose name is literally Slim Pickens. And I don't think this is true. But the lore is that Stanley Kubrick never told Slim Pickens it was a comedy. Just told him to play the character of this. Because that is Slim Pickens, if you've seen him in anything. Oh, Blazing Saddles, some people might know him from. He's, he is just that. That's just Slim Pickens. Oh, I should talk about two, two other things. So Sterling Hayden, who plays Jack the Ripper. We already saw him in... A film we did last year. Oh, gets shot through the neck by Michael. He played Captain McCluskey in The Godfather. Oh, um, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. He was famous from westerns and film noirs. Very paternal kind of he man kind of character guy, character actor. And then George C. Scott. George C. Scott was a young man who wanted to be a writer. Never wrote anything to his own satisfaction. He became a marine, if you can imagine that. Was the honor guard for a bunch of Arlington Cemetery funerals. Started to drink in the Marines, if you can imagine that for George C. Scott. And it was a hard drinking, hard smoking guy, but not a particularly, for a guy who played roles of such authority and masculinity, he's an artisty kind of guy. He studied journalism and then studied drama at the University of Missouri. And started doing Shakespeare. He performed Richard III at the New York Shakespeare Festival. And a critic said it was the angriest Richard III he had ever seen, if you can imagine that. He got his big break in movies playing the prosecutor in Anatomy of a Murder, a great Jimmy Stewart movie. And he's George C. Scott. He's famous for Patton and Christmas Carol. And he plays the bad guy in The Rescuers Down Under. And uh, The Changeling is one of the best ghost-haunted house kind of movies. George C. Scott's fantastic in that. Apparently, the way that Kubrick tamed him was by playing chess with him. And any man that could beat George C. Scott at chess, why, he'd respect that man. <laughs> so that's how Kubrick got George C. Scott. To... But then George C. Scott hated the final product, as I said, because he felt like Kubrick misused his talent. But I say, yay, because... He misused his talent very, very well. So, Ben, you've got some broader context for us. Yeah, I do. I'll come back and interact with a few of the things you've already mentioned. But I, first of all, hey, apocalyptic stuff was in the air when this movie was being made. And certainly when the novel was, novel Red Alert was written, there was a lot of stuff like this. Everyone was worried about nuclear holocaust. You don't say. I don't say. I do say. Red Alert, Fail Safe. Read, I read about this novel I'd never heard of. Although now I'm 
wondering if I'd heard of it called On the Beach. Oh, sure. Yeah, it may have made a pretty famous movie out of it. I've never seen it. Maybe, but that's probably why I've heard of it. So it's, an Austra- it's about Australians living the last days of their lives, waiting for deadly ra- radiation to overtake them from a nuclear blast. But they have their government given suicide pills in hand and they're trying to sort out their relationships, which all reminds me of uh, Deep Impact. Well, I was going to say, if anybody's, I was actually just movie. about to say, if anyone's see, ever seen Deep Impact, it's exactly, it's actually just a riff on, on the beach. On the beach, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I saw it in theaters. I did not. I saw Armageddon instead, which was... I saw them both. The joke was on me. Well, the joke. (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. Oh, those movies. Well, so, yeah, for obvious reasons, Cold War era. But I just, I went down a little rabbit hole. It was like, when did we start telling these apocalyptic kind of stories? Obviously, we end-of-the-world narratives are around. The Mayans. Christians have one. The Mayans have one. Basically, there's the pagan kind and the Christian kind, you know? The world ends and it's meaningless or it's a cycle or something. Or the world ends because God brings it to judgment. Those are like really your options. But I, the earliest literary predecessor to stuff like Dr. Strangelove is, it seems, a poem by Lord Byron called Darkness, which I don't think I'd ever read. It's not that long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I it's was kind poem. of tempted. It's amazing. It's about the end of the world. Nature just gives out meaninglessly. Mankind starves to death and self-destructs. Here's a little snippet. I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the, ex- in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this, their desolation. And all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light, and they did live by watchfires, and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons. It just goes on till there's like nothing. So it's really beautifully written nihilism, very I hate God kind of poem. And you might wonder, I mean, I wondered why. What's with why in the early 19th century? Some weird stuff happened in 1816 that he seems to have been riffing on. People took it as signs of the end of the world, which periodically this happens. Natural phenomena happens or a catastrophe or a plague and people are like, this is the end of the world. And that happened in 1816. Like there were sunspots you could see with the naked eye. Uh, The London Chronicle reported at the time, quote, the large spots which may now be seen upon the sun's disk have given rise to ridiculous apprehensions and absurd predictions. These spots are said to be the cause of the remarkable and wet weather we have had this summer. And the increase of these spots is represented to announce a general removal of heat from the globe, the extinction of nature, and the end of the world, unquote. That's the times. They're like, ah, this is so irritating. Stop Remember it. that when you read the latest climate thing, right? folks? It's, it just goes around and around. It really does. And there were weird periods of darkness in part of Europe because there was volcanic ash in the air from the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. But a lot of people didn't know why. It was dark at noon. And also, a scientist in Italy, according to Wikipedia, predicted the sun would go out on the 18th of July. His prophecy caused riots, suicides, and religious fervor all over Europe. And then this entry goes on to mention some other weird things that happened, or some hysteria. Quote, a bath girl woke her aunt and shouted at her that the world was ending, and the woman promptly plunged into a coma. In Liege, a huge cloud in the shape of a mountain hovered over the town, causing alarm among the old women who expected the end of the world on the 18th. In Ghent, a regiment of cavalry passing through the town during a thunderstorm blew their trumpets, causing three-fourths of the inhabitants to rush forth and throw themselves on their knees in the streets, thinking they had heard the seventh trumpet. 
And then there's a bunch of poems like Byron's in the years after. And I hadn't known this was a thing, but these are last man poems. <laughs> so you have The Last Man by Thomas Campbell in 1824, and then you have The Last Man by Thomas Hood, and then you have The Last Man by Thomas Lovell Beddoes. <laughs> I know the question that you want to ask. Why are all these guys named Thomas? Probably one of the greatest unsolved literary mysteries of all time. We'll never know. But what we do know is that they were all about the last man. One of them is actually basically a Christian poem. Like, when the end of the world comes, the last man is going to put his faith in God for the resurrection. The others are more like grim, either just morally grim or just like macabre grim. And then you've got Mary Shelley's 1826 novel, The Last Man, which is three volumes, critically panned at the time, said at the end, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how, I can't imagine, the writer of Frankenstein, a boring three-volume novel. So, set at the end of the 21st century, about a plague that kills everyone except one dude, or at least, as far as he knows, and he ends the novel wandering the earth with his dog. And I think, why not go ahead and draw a direct line to that dumb Will Smith movie about the guy who was friends with a mannequin. So, okay. Back to the 50s. Why not? Yeah, why not? I, I do. You did? That is a beautiful description. Of that movie, by the way. <laughs> you just did. <laughs> the guy with the dog who was in love with the mannequin. <laughs> oh, man. It's so, so yeah. No so mannequin. You, 1950s, you just have a scientific reason for the same thing. People are always, it's always on their minds. And I, I guess I forgot that it was always on everyone's minds. The end of the world, it's coming. Well, now we're going to do it through nuclear bombs. Like, we're, we don't even need God to do it. It, we'll just do it ourselves. You don't need to wait for nature to extinguish itself. We'll do it. And if, maybe as the West in particular, like, that's probably going to come back to bite us what we did to Japan. That's probably, we're going to get a taste of our own destructive power. Crud. You got all that stuff. I found, you already talked about script construction and stuff. Kubrick gets the script, punches it up, makes it funny. And Kubrick invents the character Dr. Strangelove for... The funny version of the movie. Not from the novel. Not from the novel. He did not exist. He did not have a, a Nazi scientist <laughs> who got his powers of walking back. <laughs> but <laughs> if you've ever seen or read about the movie Failsafe, I haven't seen it, but I read about this. There's a character named Dr. I can't pronounce this, Greatishell, who's a German doctor arguing that nuclear war may be a necessary option to wipe out the threat of communist Russia. So that's another thing that Kubrick made hay with when he sued the failsafe production or whatever, like you guys, you have a, a German doctor character who's obviously, like, you're doing the same thing that we are, which may just be the zeitgeist, because <laughs> everyone's thinking about communism, Russia, nuclear arms, blah, blah, blah. And we did actually adopt a bunch of German scientists, right? Didn't well, we? yeah, that's another thing that feeds in, and that's that feeds into the creation of Dr. Strangelove. Obviously, everyone says that Werner von Braun is part of the inspiration. Werner von Braun famous Nazi scientist who helped the Nazis develop these guided missiles they would use prominently during World War II. The V-2 rockets True. used a lot. And he's, he was, well, here's a quote from him. <laughs> I have a very deep and sincere regret for the victims of the V-2 rockets, but there were victims on both sides. A war is a war. And when my country is at war, my duty is to help win that war. So that gives you a good feel for Von Braun. There's a lot of controversy over what kind of Nazi he, like, was he really, was he just a pure scientist just caught in the machine? Was he just trying to save his own skin? Was he like on board with the whole program? It's clear he knew about the concentration camps and the abuses and all did this stuff. Did we care? What's that? <laughs> did we care? Did we care? No, we did not care. At the end of the war, near the end of the war, when Hitler's like 
this is about to be over in a bad way. He gives some order to have the scientists who have worked on weaponry killed. So Von Braun flees with some of his, the guys who worked under him. They surrendered to the Allies and they're, let's say, conscripted pretty quickly by the U.S. And over time, Von Braun becomes a very influential, powerful We don't care what you think. We don't care what you believe. We care about your talents. If you want to live, you'll do what we tell you to. That's right. And Von Braun gave us a lot of, I mean, he played a significant part in starting the American space program. He helped us develop weapons and rockets. He's an interesting guy. People also think that Edward Teller, who's known as the father of the hydrogen bomb, and helped inspire Dr. Strangelove. He was Hungarian-American physicist. He immigrated to the States in the 30s. He was part of the Manhattan Project to develop the atom bomb, hydrogen bomb, of course, just the next step up, level two. So we're going to learn all about him in that new... Uh, That's right, and Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, yeah. Oppenheimer, so I like to say Oppenheimer. You say Oppenheimer. I we'll say... the whole thing off. Teller, you say, yeah. So Oppenheimer and, and Teller had an interesting relationship because Teller betrayed him basically at this at this security clearance trial and Oppenheimer was cut out from working in the top levels of government and stuff after that because they didn't trust him because of Teller's testimony and so he's an interesting guy he helped the Israeli government develop their nuclear program and his main deal was strong nuclear arms are what we need they are what we need we should have them they're good deterrents they would, they'll stop wars from starting. Let's have them. Let's help other people we like have them too. It's all for the best. So you can see that. But the main guy I want to talk about, the most interesting to me, is a guy named Herman Kahn. And Herman Kahn was very influential on Dr. Strangelove. So this guy is a futurist, a military theorist who, well, for instance, Sidney, Sidney Lumet said that the evil German political scientist, Dr. Greta Shell and Failsafe was based on Khan. Who is this guy? Well, he, he's influenced our world a lot. A lot. I had never heard of him. Here's a quote from the, a New Yorker article about him, though. Quote, Herman Kahn was the heavyweight of the megadeth intellectuals. That was not their title for themselves. Huh? The men who, in the early years of the Cold War, made it their business to think about the unthinkable and to design the game plan for nuclear war, how to prevent it. Or if it could not be prevented, how to win it. Or if it could not be won, how to survive it. The collective combat experience of these men was close to nil. Their diplomatic experience was smaller. Their training was in physics, engineering, political science, mathematics, and logic, and they worked with the latest in assessment technologies, operational research, computer science, systems analysis, and game theory. The type of war they contemplated was, of course, never waged, but whether this was because of their work or in spite of it has always been a matter of dispute." Unquote. So Khan writes this book called On Thermonuclear War, which, and right away, you think about the movie War Games, also pulling from everything this guy created. And this book talks about a winnable nuclear exchange. He talks about some things that will be familiar to you from Dr. Strangelove. Outfitting mine shafts as living quarters so that you can evacuate big chunks of your population and use that as part of your deterrent strategy. Part of your like, hey, if this goes down, I can save a bunch of my people. We got the mine shafts ready. He talks about, <laughs> he talks in an optimistic way about the rebuilding process. Yeah, I don't think the survivors will be paralyzed by grief. I think they'll use what their experience to fuel their desire to cre recreate civilization. So they basically gave Dr. Strangelove, let Dr. Strangelove make that point in a more sinister way. In the well, it, yes, Dr. Strangelove and Buck Turgidson almost quote parts of this book. Enough so that Khan was like, 
hey, Kubrick, I should be getting royalties for this. Kubrick was like, sorry, that's not how this works. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, that really happened. So Khan, this book, you can find it for free online. He talks about giving elderly survivors of the war food that's more radioactive because they're probably, they're going to die anyway before cancer from the radioactivity gets them. So that just makes sense. You've got to be pragmatic. Food is going to be scarce. He talks matter-of-factly about how many civilians as a nation you should be ready to lose in a war. In the entire book, all of it is framed in terms of deterrence. This is all the stuff you do just to deter. Like, why do you outfit the mineshaft? To convince the other side, hey, buddy, we're serious. That's why. Why do you prepare? (laughs) Why do you have a number of how many civilians you're willing to lose? Well, to convince Russia, hey, we are very serious. And that's the main idea. And if you, if you can show that you have counter-strike capabilities and you can evacuate your citizens and that you're ready to retaliate in kind, there's a far better chance that Russia's never gonna flip the switch and send a missile your way. And so Khan also talks about a doomsday machine in the book, which is a term that he came up with. Although he got the idea of the device from the book, Red Alert. <laughs> Red Alert has basically a doomsday machine, just like you see in the movie. It wasn't called that. But Khan uses it as a thought experiment, to be fair to him. He's not like, you should build this. He's actually like, this is a bad idea. This is going to appeal to the military, and they're going to be idiots if they implement it. So Khan is not just like, the movie is just not simply lampooning Khan, but it also is clearly lampooning Khan. So Khan is Jewish. He's also an atheist. Hopefully you would have guessed that by hearing me describe his pragmatism. And Kubrick met with him a number of times to get an understanding of how he thought about nuclear war and deterrence. And yeah, fed them into Dr. Strangelove, who's a monster and a madman. So, but Khan apparently was not offended. He was like, oh, comedy, great. People are going to be thinking about this and talking about this and they need to because we have to, because there's danger here and we have to deter it. He's just super important in the development of US policy around nuclear war. And (laughs) he worked for the Rand Corporation. In the movie, there's the Bland Corporation. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Rand is an acronym for research and development. It's just a think tank originally started by the Air Force, not an official government agency, but basically a government agency. And then later on, Khan started a conservative think tank still around called the Hudson Institute. Still influential, still conservative. Khan at one time, maybe, I don't know what they do now, but they do this stuff. They do geopolitical stuff, but they also think about education and culture in the broader sense. And Khan was trying to expand what they thought about. Ralph Ellison was a consultant like that. Ralph Ellison, author (laughs) of Invisible Man, was brought on as a consultant during Khan's lifetime. I don't know why. I couldn't find any detail about that. But that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And that's so, so, so that's Khan. Just think about the movies that are based around his way of thinking and Mm -hmm. deterrence and like, what if? And the other thing is this article that we'll link to in the show notes, dear listener, an old New Yorker article. Oh, yeah, this was insane. You sent this to me. It's crazy. It's called Almost Everything in Dr. Strange Love Was True. I'm not going to go through all of this, but let's just say that, well, Kubrick did his research well. And even though <laughs> they have a very funny scrolling title at the beginning of Dr. Strange Love saying the U.S. Air Force, <laughs> the U.S. Air Force assures you, or whatever it is, that nothing in this movie is true. It wouldn't really happen. We have safeguards in place. Well, the actual situation was that in 1953, President Eisenhower, wanting to retain control of the kill switch, was convinced to give access to other military officers 
because what if the president were just killed? That's exactly what they talk about in the movie. Of course, of course. And it makes perfect sense. But he did that. And then Kennedy takes office and Kennedy's like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Kennedy finds out about this. And it's a secret delegation of power. And so, yeah, here's a quote from the article. Quote, a subordinate commander faced with a substantial military action, Kennedy was told in a top secret memo, could start the thermonuclear holocaust on his his own initiative if he could not reach you, unquote. So, these, (laughs) so the government was, it was as flat-footed in that sense. It was as loose about this stuff as the movie makes it look. Just not in a, Comedic way, directly. <laughs> and, and it's worse in some ways than what the movie shows, because what was actually happening is that there were American nuclear arms around the world. And who's guarding these? Oh, who's transporting these? Foreign military. Like, a foreign military contingent. And maybe there's one American officer with a gun there to supervise or give uh, American uh, official whatever, to what's going on. I actually wrote down a quote from the article. Yeah. Agnes Sparrow Agnew's seeing going to these bases. <laughs> quote, nearly wet his pants when he realized that a lone American sentry with a rifle was that all that prevented someone from taking off on one of those planes and bombing the Soviet Union. <laughs> it's crazy. So the Kennedy administration is like, we have to put some kind of locking devices on these nuclear weapons, on NATO's nuclear weapons, because they're not locked. That You can't make this stuff up. And so they have these... PALS is the permissive action links. They're these electromechanical switches. But the State Department in America is going to push back and like be like, no, everything's fine. This is dumb. We're not going to put these locks on. And these locks, they start lame and they get better. And now they're probably pretty okay. <laughs> but you just read about this stuff and you think, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And here's, Where's this one thing about what the access code was? Did you see that, Nathan? No, I, don't, I don't think so. Although, yeah, quote, although the Air Force now denies this claim, according to more than one source I contacted, I as the reporter here, the code necessary to launch a middle missile was set to be the same at every minute man site. Zero, 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 zero. <laughs> <laughs> so this is straight out of strange love. It's crazy. Everything hangs by a thread. It really is at the mercy of the ego of men who don't understand the larger context and who do not have, they don't have accountability, it's nuts. You should read the article. It's not that long. Yeah, it was crazy. I read it. (laughs) (laughs) That's all. I've been reading a book about the CIA, which I talked about uh, over in the Sound of Sanity podcast and the history of our, there's two things that come across. A, our bumbling incompetence, just how loose and how Secret and how much ego there is in all these kinds of decisions. That's one thing that comes across. And then just how on the heels we were with Soviet Russia. It's like we never found our footing. We were just always in flight, fight slash flight slash. One of the stories from the book, which I told on the other podcast, is I think it's Eisenhower. Yeah. Eisenhower finding out 10 days after the Soviets have tested their first bomb that that has happened, and his response being, okay, let's launch, because that's just where we were at. A, we were so behind on our intel that we we didn't find out. The CIA could not deliver that information in a timely fashion. B, we felt so sort of on our heels when we found out that our response was, okay, I guess we have to blow up Russia. And thank God we didn't. But it's insane. It's insane. And I think the thing that you do have to remember about a Dr. Strangelove or about any criticism of the time is that 
Soviet Russia was real and represented a real threat. And I think that that, and it was scary and it was a threat to our way of life. And as the communists sweep through our in institutions now, you can see some of the threat come to pass. But I think it is easy to forget in the portrait of George C. Scott in this movie. It is easy to forget he actually does have a real and a formidable enemy that he is fighting. It's not just that he's got this machismo bluster that exists for absolutely no purpose but his own self-aggrandizement, which is what so many critics of the military-industrial complex want to portray. Mm -hmm. So I think there, this movie scores a lot of fair points, but also it is important to remember just how scary and big Russia can and I, it was. I, yeah. I found there's one more thing I had forgotten about in this article that I should, this is a paragraph I should just read because it's unbelievable. Quote, a decade after the release of Strange Love, the Soviet Union began work on the perimeter system, a network of sensors and computers that could allow junior military officers to launch missiles without oversight from the Soviet leadership. Perhaps nobody at the Kremlin had seen the film. Completed in 1985, the system was known as the Dead Hand. Once it was activated, perimeter would order the launch of long-range missiles at the United States if it detected nuclear de detonations on Soviet soil and Soviet leaders couldn't be reached. Like the doomsday machine and strange love perimeter was kept secret from the United States. Its existence was not revealed until years after the Cold War ended. That's fascinating. Yeah. All right. Well, there's all the depressing history that you need. It's crazy stuff. Crazy. I think that does put strange love in a context and it makes you feel the importance of the movie. I mean, it I think it did in some ways change the conversation, and I think probably for the better. I think somebody taking the wind out of all of this wasn't a bad thing necessarily. But that's getting into my take. What do you guys think on rewatch of Dr. Strangelove? I think I already more or less said what I think. Which is? That it was fun and funny and strangely suited to the times. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have much more to add than that. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. What would I say? I guess I I, I could talk about. I found a I read Doctor Doctor Ebert Roger Ebert's review, and I thought it had a good insight into how this movie works. He says, "Doctor Strange Love's humor is generated by a basic comic principle: people trying to be funny are never as funny as people trying to be serious and failing. The laughs have to seem forced on unwilling characters by the logic of events. A man wearing a funny hat is not funny, but a man who doesn't know he's wearing a funny hat." Oh, now you've got something, unquote. And I think that gives you a good That's insight good. into Dr. Strangelove and how the movie works. It gives you a good insight into how great comedy works. It gives you a good insight into why I personally don't like a lot of modern comedy from, from about the Adam Sandler school on, because the Adam Sandler school is always like, I'm aggressively doing something now. I'm putting on a funny hat. That's basically Adam Sandler comedy. It's a big hat. It's funny. Yeah, it's funny, because why would a guy put, a hat, put on a hat like that? And you could argue may, well, no, I don't think you could. You could stupidly argue that the character of Dr. Strange. It's not really Strange the Adam Sandler school. It's the, uh, the SNL school. The SNL mm -hmm. school. Yeah, I think so SNL what's, at, at what's, his what's his name? Lauren Michaels. Yeah, the Lauren Michaels mm -hmm. school. Lauren Michaels, yeah. SNL is always funniest when, it's, when it finds a way to not do that. But yes, at its worst, a lot of modern. Or when it hams it up so much that it's a joke on itself. Like the Burt Reynolds skit I just referenced. I don't think I've seen it. Oh, the, it's uh, the funny hat sketch. It's part it. of a celebrity Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I he pulls out a, a massive hat. It's Norm MacDonald. This is funny. Yeah. And he's telling you that it's funny because it's a huge funny <laughs> hat. And he's insisting that it's funny because it's 
Ezra McDonald bringing an additional layer to yeah, the, but it's <laughs> part of it. it's when that's when uh-huh. when you create that you double down on the humor and you let somebody like Norm McDonald smirk right underneath his mustache with his big funny hat pretending to be Burt Reynolds and it yeah it works yeah no I mean there's plenty that works but. I would also say like the modern, not that I even watch these movies, but the Judd Apatow kind of style of everybody's riffing, everybody's making these jokes, everybody's trying to be funny. And we're obviously using, or like the Zach Galifianakis school of I'm intentionally being awkward and mean and weird. Like I hate that whole school because what you want is Zach Galifianakis is trying to be normal and he just sucks at it. Like Chris Farley used to do those interviews where he'd have Paul McCartney or something. And the joke was Chris Farley was really scared and shy and doing a bad job. Yes, I remember that. Jake just pulled out the Burt Reynolds. That's <laughs> <laughs> really good. It's funny even as a still. As a still. <laughs> oh, man. But this movie is funny because no one is trying to be Nobody's trying to be funny. Even George C. Scott, when he's pulling all his funny faces and stuff, it's like the character is committed to what he's saying. It's he's excited about this stuff. So I think it's good. I think that's a good lesson for all you budding comedy writers out there. The other big take I would give is I'm really tired of fatuous hacks using the word satire to justify their smarmy tones. Who on earth could you be talking about? I don't know. Just <laughs> Christian media and stuff. It's, uh, they're like, hey, we're smarmy and we didn't bother actually writing any jokes, but we just adopted kind of the smarmy attitude of like a John Stewart kind of thing 15 years after he quit. And <laughs> <laughs> 15 years after it was, and 20 years after it was cool. And then, but yeah, and then the, but we're using satire to put a bullet in the head of evil. That's lame. But having said that, when satire, like people use satire as an excuse to be lazy, to just cop an attitude right. and think that they've made a point. But when somebody works really hard and is really skilled at making a satire, which happens maybe once every hundred years, that person can change the course of. I mean, Mark Twain did destroy the South in Huckleberry Finn in a way such that there's the South before Huckleberry's Finn's written and there's the South after, and we can never think of the genteel South the same way after Huckleberry Finn. George Orwell, same thing with Animal Farm or 1984. You could even say Dr. Seuss with the Lorax. You don't have to like the anti-logging point, but nobody will ever think about logging the same way after the Lorax. You cannot go back, like, like somebody rode through the woodlot and burned it to the ground. There is no you could even actually say something like Mel Brooks with Young Frankenstein. You cannot go back and watch the old Frankenstein movies and not think about jokes from Young Frankenstein if you've seen that movie. And that is what actual successful satire can do. But it's incredibly hard to do. And you have to put all of your resources into writing the perfect script and having the perfect actors and all the stars have to align. And the sun has to smile down on you. You can't just be like, I'm going to make a satire today. So Shrek. Yeah, Shrek. Our favorite. Our favorite. Well, one day we're going to do a three-hour episode <laughs> on Shrek and the decline of Western civilization. I think that will be the name of the episode. <laughs> well, it's really worth asking. Well, Shrek is interesting if you want to actually ask because Shrek does do what I just said. I mean, it does burn Disney to the ground such that you cannot 
go back to Snow White or one of the singing animal movies and think about it without thinking of Shrek's mockery of it. I think my disagreement with Shrek is the same disagreement that I have with Ryan Johnson burning Luke Skywalker to the ground. It's not that they Burned did a bad job. It's, yeah, it's that. Well, but the, there's a sense in which you could argue that maybe this hasn't happened and maybe you can't make this argument. It's a discussion worth having. Was Shrek the fire that needed to happen so that the forest could regrow? There's a sense yeah. in which a certain kind of satire or something like that can put the bullet in the head of something that's gone to seed in such a way that you can come back I think down that's the line. probably true. I think that there's some truth to that. Like, like Shrek put a bullet in the head of the princess movie that had gone to seed and D Disney had lost its way and had not figured out how to, you know, and Shrek just came along and just buried something that was already dead. Yeah. But which forced creativity, forced people to come back and say, can we tell a fairy tale story after all? Can we tell it in a new and fresh way? And, you may not like any of the solutions they've come up with. They sure made a lot of money with those frozen. But they did come back with something fresh and new hmm. that made a lot of money. Yeah. Well, and did true or false, we all liked Shrek when it came out. True. true. And I've, I liked Shrek too. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I was so happy for it to burn that. The legacy of Shrek down. is poisonous and awful, but if we went back and watched it, I guarantee you I would hate every minute of watching it. Right. But- we all did feel, it did feel really refreshing. Like, mm -hmm. oh, thank you for putting a bullet in that dying yeah. genre. Yeah, and I watched the sequels and enjoyed them too. It was just sort of like, yeah, something that expressed my feelings. Yeah, I think it maybe- It was the zeitgeist. It was popular for a reason. It hit at the right time. It, it worked. Maybe it's just a matter of, did you, like Shrek, maybe my, some of my hatred, my retroactive hatred for it is this. It came across a dying animal and through no particular skill of its own, it was able to put a bullet in the head of this animal that was already about to die. Something like Strangelove, it came across what thought it was a noble stag, and then it had to like use all of its power to wrestle this noble stag under the water and hold it there and make it drown. Like It took real skill to make Dr. Strangelove. It's, not, it's just the difference between cheap shots and not cheap shots. Like... Yeah, I mean, if we hadn't been kids, more or less, I don't. When did Shrek come out? Oh two or something? Yeah, like early oddies. Right. Yeah. So in 02, I'm what seventeen, eighteen, and it's just the right time of rebellion and transformation and leaving your parents' house and yeah, you want everything like else. If there was a more mature, maybe we us today living through Shrek would have had a more mature perspective on it. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, it takes it just takes cheap shots. It takes vulgar shots. It's got Matrix Kung Fu when that was Lord already tired. Rings. What's that? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. It's just, it's lazy. It's kicking something while it's down. It's punching down. 2001. 2001. Yeah, that makes total sense. Pre-September 11th? Well, it was in production before September 11th, and that's, that's the interesting part, I guess. But that is the line of demarcation, obviously, culturally. April 22nd, 2001, so it released summer prior to 9-11. Okay. So we're all just basking in our post-90s happiness. And the world's about to end. But yeah, it's just a matter of cheap shots or not. Dr. Strangelove feels like it has to, I don't know, maybe some of Dr. Strangelove is cheap too, but it feels like it's taking a huge target, the entire military industrial com complex, and then it's got to be in good shape to beat that target into submission, whereas Shrek is taking a target that everybody all or already feels badly about and is mad at and just 
rampaging over it in a way that leaves a sour taste in my mouth now. It's like when you watch a political comedian and they say, Trump is stupid, and the audience goes nuts. And I'm offended by that on several levels, but one of them is just comedically, you didn't have to construct a joke. You didn't have to put any work into that. You you just chose a target that everybody in your audience hated. You pandering. It's pandering. And I don't like it when conservatives do it. I was just alluding to conservatives that do it. When it's just like, uh, I don't like the Babylon Bee, okay? You know, big evil worship pastors. They're stupid. Okay, great. You really took a lot of work to take the tar out of something. Oh, Joel Osteen, stupid. Okay, mm. fantastic. Good work, guys. We Nobody knew that. We were all, thank you for finally giving us perspective on Joel Osteen. Dr. Strangelove gives you such a good perspective, even in the places where it's exaggerated, unfair, or we just plain disagree with you. It gives you such a good perspective that it helps you rethink everything and it still feels pertinent today. You learn something about the Ukraine situation from Dr. Strangelove. Actually, you see how the pomposity and the self-aggrandizement and the people-pleasing and the, yes, the sexual Freudian element of it. You see all that to this day. I don't agree with every one of Kubrick's points. I think some of them are dumb. I think his obsession with sex is actually pretty juvenile. And his explanation for everything actually being just dudes feel bad in bed, so they blow up the world is a stupid place for this movie to land. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying Dr. Strangelove doesn't get things wrong or take pe- cheap shots in its own way, but it is a work of art. And the Babylon Bee is just not. Well, should we talk about some of the tedium? I want to say my theory. Yeah, let's see. Why don't you say your theory about the tedium? Yeah, you have these long, tedious sequences of the guys in the B-52 bomber yes. flipping switches and confirming things on the radio and flipping more switches. And then when you're like, something's going to happen, you're right. They're going to flip more switches. And Kubrick's going to zoom in on the switches. This trick he does probably 10 times where they flip a switch and then he zooms in to emphasize that this is the switch they flipped. You see the word next to the switch? And it's after huh? somebody has, huh? somebody will huh? say, flip the C93 switch. So they say it. And yeah. then you see somebody flip the, flips a thing that's labeled C93 and then it zooms in. To C93, to the C93. label C93. And I think it does have a comic effect in its way. But in my opinion... It's like 2001 in that he wants you to be bored. He actually, he wants you to feel like you're trapped in a machine because the movie, so much of it is like, well, we can't, we built this technology that now is actually going to ruin our ability to connect with the people who could stop what's about to happen. Can't connect with the plane. Well, he's saying you you are trapped in a machine. You know you're trapped in a machine. Yeah. I know you're trapped in a machine. Here you are. We're all trapped in a machine. And the more I can make you feel trapped in a machine, the more when the bombs go off at the end, it'll just feel like a release. <laughs> That's what I think. Like a release? Sorry. Yeah, catharsis. Yeah. Isn't this what... The more this movie goes on, the more... Don't you just want the bombs to just go? Like I, I think that's part of... Maybe. That might be... Or, I, or maybe... I'm sure you're right. Go ahead. Or maybe he just wants to tease the question. I mean... I, I think he might want to tease the question. What it makes me feel is like it's sucking the life out of me in a very calculated way. So that by the times the bombs go off, what I feel is sort of, a sort of learned helplessness or something. I don't actually feel catharsis, I don't think, in this movie. I'm probably wrong. I probably feel some. But I also feel a sense of, like, oh, there's like nothing. There's just death. You've <laughs> been rendered totally into, You've been rendered totally impotent, and the bombs actually are the symbol of your impotence, which is a big, obviously, that's part of the theme. But I just mean... 
it makes me feel that way viewing it too. I'm like, I don't feel relieved that this finally, that all this boring stuff is finally over and the, finally the bombs went off. It took forever. They were just trapped the whole time and we're going to hell and no one can stop it and we're flipping switches and we're just talking about it, the switches that we're flipping and no one can assert any authority to stop this because you can't, because the machine is in control. Well, one thing that might lend credence to that point of view is the way that the finale of the movie is edited. Roger Ebert was has always been irritated with this movie. He wrote two or three different reviews or essays where he said the same thing, which is, why do we have Colonel Kong ride the bomb down the explosion and then cut back to this long conversation? Wouldn't it make more point? Like you're getting this, sorry, turn this off for your kindergartners that are listening right now, folks. You begin the movie with a phallus. You're, you've got a cigar, you've got all these phallic things in 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 front of, in, in your face, and you've got impotence, 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 and then finally, the bomb goes off. The guy rides the bomb down, it's between his legs, it goes off, and there's your catharsis, that's the end of the movie. We should just cut to Vera Lynn, and we'll meet again, and put all the mineshaft stuff before that. It was mm-hmm. a very easy edit that you could right, make. Right, right, right. But Kubrick actually seems to want he does it to deflate you. You get Colonel Kong, which is obviously the ending of the movie. You know, yeah, like right. any course, idiot would put that would make that the last image of the movie. But he wants to cut back for another ten thing. minutes, or and it's a funny thing. It's got some of Sellers' best silly mugging and stuff like that. But I dare say that's probably a lot of people's favorite part of the movie, just because it's so funny. But it is weirdly deflating to have a long scene post climax, so to speak. And so, <laughs> yeah. But I also agree with Jake that just watching all that footage of real bomb blasts that you know are taken from actual tests at the mm-hmm. end is it's just kind of like this is beautiful <laughs> like yeah goodbye world <laughs> right it is both you're in love with what's going to destroy you yeah that's how you learn to love the bomb man that's yep. right that's how i learned to love the bomb i'll tell you that much i yeah. i'm just thinking about 2001 is a movie about I know there's been a million bad theses written about this, but I guess we might as well just say it explicitly. 2001 is like, there's these apes that just want to beat each other over the head with bones bones and have sex and stuff. But then one of them figures out how to be really good at beating each other over the head with bones. And suddenly we have technology, but we're still just apes that want to beat each other over the head with bones, really, until the star man changes us into something else for whatever reason we've just built bigger and better bones to beat each other up with and eventually those bones will destroy us if the star man doesn't enter. this movie mm-hmm. is actually the exact same thing it mm-hmm. is we're just apes that want to have sex and want to hit each other yeah uh, men are at least i don't know what women are i guess they really are just our playthings. I, I don't know that this movie actually has a more sophisticated perspective on women than I mean, its heroes do that's i think that's the whole point of sticking that scene right where it is it's like okay the bombs are all going to go off. Everything's going to die. Let's plot right now in this moment, the final moments of humanity. Let's plot how we can each have 10 wives and get as much sex as we can and secure our own ability to have lots and lots of sex over the next 100 years and come out ready to beat our enemies over the head with bigger bones. And we'll tell ourselves that it's not a moral, it's not a morally bad choice because we'll be putting it in a computer, and it's <laughs> and we have to preserve ourselves for the survival of humanity or whatever <laughs> yeah. he says. Yeah. And then the bombs can go off once right. we have paused to be sure that we've secured our ability in this room to have lots of sex. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. A minute. <laughs> 
is the world as we know it about to be destroyed? We have to secure our ability to have lots and lots of sex. It's all about protecting our bodily fluids, our precious bodily <laughs> fluids. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I never remember this detail from the movie, even though it's an important one, which is that Jack Ripper, his entire plan started when he had a bad experience in bed and he, the only way he could explain it to himself was the communists have poisoned his water and his bodily fluids. This is a big question, maybe beyond the scope of this podcast, but I was thinking about, so this, this movie starts, I guess maybe we'll talk through the plot a little bit. This movie starts with a famous scene of a plane refueling and it's put over love music and it's like a really vulgar uh, metaphor, folks, and very vulgar the way they use the stock footage. But I guess my question is, is that funny? It's a good question. Are we allowed to say yes? I think we are, but Pagans and Kubrick and even a lot of Christians, like the basic assumption there is that there is something inherently funny about sex, like just seeing a machine do the process. I thought it was funny that that was just how we're getting started. Uh, so maybe I thought it was- Just like kind of as a middle finger to the audience. Yeah, like, that's hey. just like middle fingers all around. The Air Force says everything, or the Defense Department says everything in this movie is retarded, and I'm going to put it in a great big title scroll. Mm. And then I'm just going to have two planes, two Air Force, you know, two United States military planes <laughs> refueling in mid-flight with big titles over the top of them, and it's just a <laughs> yeah, no, it's just this movie is about. Can I say what I want to say? Yeah, we we already told people to not have their kids listen to this part. So it's about people with penises. It's about people with, it's about penises and I have the biggest one of everybody. And that it's like a statement of all the phallic symbols. I have the phallus to throw them all in your face at the top and tell you, like, it's just like this whole movie is a great big phallic joke and I'm the only one with the phallus big enough to do it. Well, especially and because it, and it's so it's just so the first shot is so brazen. Like you get a lot of shots just of the planes, but the first shot is the symbol in your face coming at you. And you're going to get a lot of what's his face's cigar like that. And there's going to be any number. It's going to be a motif in this movie that there's going to be something sticking into the camera. And yeah, I did. I think we all three of us laughed just maybe not so much at the long play of the joke but just at the like the brazen the audacity, the audacity of it, of it. Yeah. the audacity of it is hard not to yeah yeah i don't know how to explain the kind of laugh it it gets from you but it's mm. just so audacious it, there's a certain kind of audacity that just what are you supposed to do yeah i don't know that it's because sex is funny in and of itself maybe that's why but it's a parody of sex. Well, well, not to get um, too high-handed or heavy with all this, but you think about things like the like Chaucer, the Canterbury Tale. You think about sex farce through the ages, and it feels to me like the premise of a lot of pagan sex comedy is that sex itself, for everything that we load it up with, all the meaning that we give to it, all the romance of it, everything, it is actually this incredibly mechanical ridiculous animalistic thing that's pretty silly actually it's like two naked people doing this thing that you can see cats do like when you remove the spiritual element the emotional element the psychological element from it what you're left with is actually something 
that in and of itself is small, absurd, and ridiculous. I think that is the premise of a Kubrick and many of his films and of a lot of, of like a Shakespeare. And so maybe that's beyond the purview of this podcast, but I just thought that's an interesting question of whether we could, whether we reject that because of, and I've never thought about it at all. Like uh, my instinct is we probably do have to reject that as Christians. I think we do. And yet I feel the pull of it a little bit. Well, like, it's the pull. I think you don't you feel a pull of it because sin has made us ashamed and we are foolish. And even in the things we do that are part of the way God made us, we're rejecting him. Yeah. I mean, maybe there is some comedy there, actually. Maybe I actually accept it. Maybe you just made the argument for it, actually, is that yeah. God gave us this great gift that is so tied up with our this this deep relationship we're supposed to have with our spouse, a relationship of a spiritual and psychological and emotional nature. And then we are fat, silly, fallen creatures. We are sinners and we live in an imperfect world. And I just feel gospel coalition-y as I say this, but absurdity has been introduced into the mix. I don't know that I feel bad about it. I have a vague sense that maybe I should, but I don't actually feel bad about it. And what I want to say, it's, this is imperfect. This is not thought through. So. Yeah, I just brought this topic up to but, see what happens. But I think so. some of it has to do with context. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think... There's a sense in which gallows humor has its place as a placeholder for this discussion. Death is serious. Death is the fall. Death is our sin. Death is judgment. Death is all of those things. All of those things are bound up in in death. It's a very grave matter. That's what you did there. Yeah, thanks. It's very clever of me. But it is. It's grave. It's serious. It's heavy. But in order to deal with the weight of that in context... There's a certain degree to which we have to be able to take it lightly if we're to take it seriously. And it's hard to really talk about, and I'm just trying to dance around it, but I think that there's a sense in which, okay, if, if you are going to, to war, you can take death seriously, and you can take, and you can have a sense of honor about it, or you can be completely nihilistic about it and take death totally lightly and just devalue the other person, the other, the person that you're fighting. But there's a sense in which you've got to deal with the tension of what on earth are we doing? We're going to war. We're going to kill or be killed. All good jokes play with the tensions of life and reveal the tensions of life, reveal the places where we take ourselves too seriously or not seriously enough, or these realities too seriously or not seriously enough. And I don't know how good comedy avoids dealing with sex and death one way or another, because those are the places that we take sex seriously in all the wrong ways and not seriously enough in all the wrong ways. And there's a comedy to the honeymoon. There's a comedy to a beautiful, serious comedy, but a beautiful, serious comedy about the the honeymoon phase of two virginal lovers coming together in the bonds of marriage, figuring things out. And it's silly and stupid and beautiful and fun. And between them alone in God. And you have to be able to preserve some of the cosmic comedy of it all. I don't know. I'm just talking my way through this and maybe it all (laughs) deserves to be cut, but... No, I don't think... I mean, I think um, every person who's listening to this who has a good marriage will know that they have jokes with their spouse that they can never tell anyone. Those jokes come out of navigating the tension of doing this incredibly beautiful and incredibly personal thing that takes two people. And so you have jokes and nicknames and whatever. 
that is especially in the honeymoon phase but even as your your marriage matures i think that is part of the way that you navigate the dance that's right just like part of the way you go to war or attend a funeral or whatever is Mm -hmm. how you grieve and mourn yeah and there are people that are just given to nihilistic i don't even want to feel the pain or i don't want to feel the pleasure it's a mask and and it's a cover and it's a shield i I think the only complicating factor and one that we won't solve today is okay how do you take that out of the bedroom and put it into your art and when is it good and when is it bad? Well, I don't. Yeah, and that's part know. of why I said it's a question of context. Yeah, because I don't think I don't feel bad about locker room humor so long as it stays in the locker room to a degree. There's always taking those types of things too far. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a degree to which men have to process things together, and humor is one of the ways that we do it. Insects and death are two of those things we process together in that sort of way. And they're some of the two of the things that are the most central to our experience as humans on this blue floating rock yeah and we have to deal with it and you don't deal with it by yourself you deal with it in community and yeah i actually don't dock this movie too many points for a lot of the stuff i think the fact that impotence being its central premise like this is what has messed us all up is the male need to dominate and reproduce is what has got us here i resent that i think that's that's a stupid yeah, and that's a definite Kubrick thing. Right. That is Kubrick, and that is Kubrick being mean, nihilistic, and just hating what makes men men and what makes humans humans, and just despising women. I mean, you, one of the reasons women don't like this movie is because it doesn't like them. And you yeah. could say it's that's the posture of the character. You could say it's the characters and not the movie, but I don't think that that's actually true. I think we do have it, one scene with a woman, and we can do something to humanize her even as much as we humanize the other characters. And instead, she's just a prop. She's just a sex toy. Yeah, She starts out in a bikini with her back to the camera and stays there. And I get that that's supposed to tell you something about George C. Scott and his character and everything. But I just think he gets a level of humanity. This Dr. Strangelove gets a level of humanity that I'm not sure she gets. I think the counter argument is that it's all, she's a prop so that Kubrick can show what, these kind of toxic men want their women to be. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that is the argument. It, yeah. I think that's, that's a, a pretty, fair take. It's fair. But also that's, they're not toxic men. They're just men. They're everybody. Yeah, but Kubrick doesn't think so, right? He exempts himself. Well, that's the question. Maybe one of the reasons that I actually don't mind this movie is the fact that he maybe doesn't. The prob- One of the things I hate about Shrek is that they, it's like themselves. Jeffrey Katzenberg obviously thinks he's better than Disney. Like usually I would feel really bad about the characterization of the pilot, Slim Pickens character, because it does just feel I like- I kept processing that actually all the way through the movie. And to some extent, I actually do. This guy's just a good old boy American and he sucks. Like he's the one that's going to actually get us blown up. Like the military guys, the people in the war room, they did their best. But this guy, he'd be damned if he wasn't going to- Blow something blow up. Blow something up. And that there is something a little sneering about that. But then it's like, you know what? Everybody in this movie deserves to be sneered at. And that that to me feels somewhat better. Yeah, well, and he's just doing his job. He is the one. And he his assumption, the only assumption he knows how to make is they've taken out DC, they've taken out New York. So, I mean, I don't know. I just didn't feel bad about his character. Well, again, the question that a Kubrick never bothers to ask is, why might society want to imbue a man with this kind of zeal? Where mm-hmm. might it benefit society? Where might it benefit the world that God made 
to have a man be single-minded and mm-hmm. his there's a reason that we breed soldiers to be that way actually and you can disagree with it in the south in texas are really good at building that kind of man and you don't have to like it or and agree with it we've won our wars on the backs of those men right it's the old chesterton thing before you tear down a fence be sure and ask what's on the other side of it is there a bull in that don't just be like this fence is in my way and it's like okay let's tear down that kind of guy we don't like that kind of guy okay but why does that kind of guy exist is it just because we're idiots i don't think so all right so we've got ripper and mandrake those are great <laughs> i hate funny names unless it's groucho Marx playing rufus t firefly who is obviously exempt from all criticism i hate funny names I mean, it's a good this, thing Bat Guano is not funny. This, <laughs> this movie is just so intent on being a cartoon in its way that I didn't mind. To me, I that, don't mind it either. I think to me, the movie walks the line of it's cartoonish, but it's also recognizable. And but the names break that reality for me. Oh, Jack T. Ripper, <laughs> and <laughs> as long as I feel like Kubrick's breaking it intentionally and he has a good reason. Well, I, I plus it's just it's more of his it's the more juvenile side of his sex humor. Buck Turgidson and Ma- even Mandrake is like a root that you eat for potency. The president's like, name is a double entendre. Yeah, it's like it's all double entendre. Everything and, is. Yeah, so I find that pretty tiresome. I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit. So you got Mandrake and Ripper. It looks like we're in a shooting war. Oh, hell. <laughs> Are the Russians involved, sir? <laughs> Which uh, one of Seller's characterizations do you guys think is the best? I, mean, I don't think Mandrake's the best. As a human being, as a character. Yeah, yeah, because you could have got you could have gotten any number of zeros to play the president. It's fun that he's able to step in and disappear into that role. And, okay, maybe nobody could have quite done Strange Love himself that way. And it's awesome and over the top, but... I think just in terms of like low key making the whole movie work as a movie and really selling the movie to me, I think Mandrake is probably my favorite character alongside George C. Scott, maybe more so than George C. Scott, just because it's just so, I don't know, I just got so many laughs out of it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's generous because he's playing the straight man. He's actually, it's actually, it's the other guy, what's his face, Ripper, that's saying the crazy things and getting the punchlines, but then you just cut to his face and he's trying to pro and he's saying, uh-huh. And it's hilarious. <laughs> it like be great. Yeah, no, he's an actually sympathetic character. If you want to say somebody's sympathetic, I'd say you feel good. It's part of the movie's nihilistic joke because it's like Mandrake actually prevails and plays the heroic part in the story. And then it, it's Doesn't absolutely matter. still blows up, <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah, Mandrake is a good character. I'm tempted to say the president just because he captures the sort of empty authority so well. Just the look on his face all the time. Mm. Just the way that... (laughs) Just the way that... Staring through his glasses. Well, he's a president who's who's (laughs) not presidential in any way, shape, or form. He's just like a bureaucratic... Office guy. I love it in in, in the way that... <laughs> and then on the phone with Dimitri. With Dimitri. It's <laughs> That's the funniest part of it's the movie. It's priceless. But even the pattern of baldness on his head is just on the verge of like, you want to laugh at it, but you're like, no, it's... I buy it. But then you're like, but it's just a little bit too far. But it's, it's like pretty... the kind of too far that you meet. We've worked for that guy. Or yeah. We've had a yeah. friend or yeah. uh, somebody in a perfect. church that's like that. Like the president, I think, is a very recognizable person who is in real life and is just that ridiculous. I don't know. I, I maintain that you could have found somebody else to give us that that character or right. character 
who pulls off somebody who pulls off that character in a way that I just don't know that you can get anybody else to do. I don't know. Maybe you could probably get some, I don't know, maybe the correct answer is strange love. Right. Strange love is kind of amazing. I mean, I think you have to start by saying they're all absolutely brilliant. They're all better than anyone at that time or in most times could have done like Peter Sellers for all his demons was an amazing artist whatever word you want to use. He was so good. And I love how, much he's not begging for laughs with any of this stuff. Even right. Dr. Strangelove has his own logic, his own insane logic, but he's a character. He's a real, like, oh, there's Dr. Strangelove. You can watch this movie with somebody, and if they don't know, they won't figure they won't it out. Yeah. And then some of that's just good hair and makeup and stuff like that, but it is also that he just so thoroughly inhabits these. I mean, the president, he's inept, He's incompetent. He's ameliorating. He's all these things, but they sort of emerge gradually. Like he's a plausible authority figure, a plausible bad authority figure, mind you, but he's plausible. And right at first. Yeah, at first. And it's just, yeah. <laughs> but Mandrake has audience sympathy, which definitely helps. And, and you can tell he, where he was in the RAF. He knew that kind of guy. And yeah, yeah, it's great people budding cinephiles out there you should notice the different ways that kubrick shoots this stuff the plain stuff is very like cinema verite very handheld very like based on documentary footage of people in planes as is the war footage the people invading Mm -hmm. the compound and stuff but then it's also precise beautiful in the sterile environments of ripper's office and then the war room which the famous bit of lore about that is that when Reagan got in office, he asked where the war room was. And they said, there is no war room. And he said, but I saw it in Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> Which I could see myself making the same mistake. You watch this movie. The war room is ridiculous. It does look like a James Bond set. I don't know why they would build a war room like that, like a giant poker table for all these people to sit around bathed in dramatic light. But you buy it. You just accept it. It's amazing. It's amazing. But who was it? Did, was it Spielberg who called it the greatest movie set ever made? Just it makes you mourn the fact that you live in Marvel world where name one memorable environment, like an environment that you just right that just pops from thirty Marvel movie Wakanda maybe I don't know Wakanda like kind of Wakanda maybe you could find stuff from Guardians in the Galaxy. Yeah, I think James Gunn has a sense of environment that Tony's basement. Yeah, Tony's basement Tony's a little basement bit. Tony's basement is, at least in the first movie. But then yeah. you think He's about- He's got the arm. That was fun. Yeah, you sure. Know, no, I'm, I'm not saying you AI can't think of things, but- Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the... But it's like so much of it is uh, just generic. Or CG generated. Or CG feeling. Yeah. And then you compare it to like the Batcave and Burton's Batman and how much it's just like, that's a place in your imagination. Yeah. It's like, we just don't have as much of that anymore. And I, I mourn it. Let's talk about Buck Turgidson. We haven't given George C. Scott enough love. He is the we MVP. We haven't. We said he was the... He's the MVP. Yeah. And I think I really was tuned into... And I think it's because I read that Kubrick gave him this direction or something. So I didn't come up with this. But he is just playing a 12-year-old. He might as well have a slingshot. Like the haircut, the pouting, the dramatic, the way he gets excited, the airplane wings that he makes when he's... <laughs> Describe, hey, he's getting really excited about how the bomber's going to fly under radar. Like, it's just all a little boy down to his relationship with his lover there at the beginning. It's brilliant. And it's so fun to see because I'm so used to 80s era George C. Scott, like the Scrooge George C. Scott, old man George C. Scott. But 
young buff George C. Scott is pretty fun, but still with the same ninety-year-old cigarette booze voice that yeah he had for his entire career. I don't know how much there is to actually talk through the plot of this movie. You basically cut between three locations and have varying levels of tension. It is. I do find it to be quite a claustrophobic movie. Like you never, you don't, you never just get, now we're outside of this whole thing. Now we're at somebody's house or now we see somebody's kids or it is just like we're in the world of the plane. We're in the world of the war room or we're in this sterile I think extra claustrophobic world in some ways of the office with Ripper and all the machines going off in the background. And mm-hmm. yeah, the closest thing you get to breathing space is when you get an external shot of the plane over the mountains or something like that, or the attack on the base. Yeah. Yeah. The, maybe some of that soldier stuff is actually good. I find it boring, but maybe it does break the monotony of if you were too trapped in these environments. I don't know. I really, if people, a good scene for, this is a director doing something cool, is the first time that the, that Ripper really reveals how insane he is the first time he says precious bodily fluids. You've got this straight ahead, very generic shot of Peter Sellers' character, and then you cut to, you keep cutting back to Ripper, and it's shot underneath, looking up at him, his giant phallic symbol cigar dominating the camera and it's just black we have the world of the sane guy over here and then we're cutting into the world of absolute madness and you'd almost think it's so over the top you'd almost think it wouldn't work here's the crazy shot of the crazy character and here's the boring shot of the boring character but it works really well i'm just looking through my notes anything else you guys want to highlight about this movie oh kennedy died right before this movie came out so the part where he says shoot a fellow could have a pretty good time in vegas was originally and you can actually see his lips say mm-hmm. dallas i noticed that but they had to change that because they wouldn't want didn't want to say a fella could have a pretty good time in dallas with all this stuff would not work so actually they bumped this movie several months because they just thought people wouldn't find it funny but it is interesting to think that just a few months before this movie was released Kennedy was shot, so they were afraid it was going to be too much, but apparently it captured the national mood just fine when they released it early next year. Yeah, I don't know. Anything else you guys want to say? I mean, there's lots of funny parts that we could just sit here quoting, but... They're usually not the ones that get quoted. Everybody's favorite line is, or line to quote is... Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. It's like one of the lamest lines of the whole movie. Yeah, I love like, that line. I do like that line, but it does get overused. Yeah, maybe it's oversaturated, but just um, leave it in the movie. It's great. Yeah, people like to quote precious bodily fluids, obviously, is a phrase that entered the English language coming off of this movie. Mind fewer, mind fewer, I could walk is probably my favorite <laughs> <line>. <laughs> uh, We will need... Animals to be slaughtered. <laughs> the way that he delivers the line slaughtered. <laughs> That's amazing. Did I say this on mic or off mic? I had new appreciation for the character of Dr. Strangelove. I think other times I've watched this movie, I've always just been like, okay, we needed something pretty silly. And so we're giving this doctor the straight it's out a of hammy w- Nazi. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. He's based on the doctor from Metropolis and some other German expressionist films. He's got the hair of, he's an archetype that would have been more familiar to people back mm-hmm. then. Like just the crazy German doctor. I guess we still have the crazy Gene Wilder. Ger- yeah. Gene Wilder. Sure. 
but I did have a new appreciation for this guy is like straight out of young or something like this archetype of death that's just looming in the shadows for most of the movie and then comes out and is at the specter of humanity being destroyed. He is reborn, his legs. And I actually found it not just a silly joke, but something a little bit profound about him step standing up and mind fear, mind fear, I can walk. It is maybe the best nihilistic joke of the movie. We all have our pretensions. We all have our sex drives. We all have our geopolitical. But at the end of the day, we are all in service of this cartoon death that just feeds on pure nihilism and draws its strength from our destruction. And so just watching Strange Love never not smile. He's got his big glasses that give him this skull-like look, and then he's you can watch him, and I don't think you can ever catch him not having this little grin on his face, and just having this movie that's relatively, like, it's exaggerated, it's silly, whatever, but it's all anchored to some kind of reality, and then you just drop the figure of death <laughs> in there. It's pretty frightening, actually. And it's hilarious. Just like anybody, I love all the business of his Nazi mechanical hand that is always ahead of where he wants to be, <laughs> trying to strangle him and all that stuff. <laughs> Which apparently, much hay has been made about how much did Sellers improvise, but I think one thing Sellers did improvise a lot is not so much the dialogue, but the physical stuff and specifically... Apparently, Stanley Kubrick hated to touch film lights, and so Stanley Kubrick would wear a black glove. And so Sellers just grabbed a black glove and started doing that. And it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, that kind of makes you want to say Dr. Strangelove is the best character, just in yeah, terms of pure yeah. comic invention. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the guy who plays the Russian diplomat smiling at one point, like he loses his... Yeah, you can catch a lot of that at the end when Spellers is doing all the mugging. There's a lot of people that are trying to hold it together. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I guess we should talk about Major Kong riding the bomb because it is one of those, like, images. It's Harold Lloyd hanging off the clock. It's singing in the rain. It's Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music or Patton in front of that flag. It is one of the iconic images from cinema. The only thing that I noticed is how long it takes to get there, though. It is, I resent how long we spend in that airplane with them just doing process stuff. I do feel trapped there. Yeah. No, it's terrible. It is quite the payoff. And maybe not knowing the movie, not knowing the image, not seeing that image used in different places, maybe it would be even more of a payoff. But man, they really make you work for it. And yeah, I do have my... I do feel a little bit bad about Major Kong in general. Like it, it, the movie is, I think, punching down there, and I prefer it when it's. I always prefer any kind of satire when it's punching up. Like he's just a soldier. He's just a functionary. Although I don't have any qualms about la- laughing at the at Bat Guano, who's another <laughs> soldier and functionary, but he always makes me laugh. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's because everybody's put up with a bat guano. Like I've got something really important to do, but there's some middle manager that just <laughs> won't let me <laughs> making all the wrong choices. <laughs> and it's because he's convinced everybody's a prevert. A prevert. Yeah. He's convinced everybody's a prevert. That's some of that sharp capitalist c- critique. He's really just working for the Coca-Cola corporation. When it comes down to it, I think I said this off mic, so I'll say it on mic. That guy's the son of Edwin. His name is Keenan Wynn. He is Edwin, of course, famous as Uncle Albert in Mary Poppins and just always being 
hired by Disney to do different things in the late 50s and early 60s. All right, Ben, how many nuclear bombs out of 407 do you give to Dr. Strangelove? On the one hand, I want to give it all of them. On the other hand, I'm like, it's draining enough and tedious enough in places that, I don't know, maybe, maybe like, I, I mean, I made the argument that it's all part of the deal, part of mm-hmm. what makes it a masterpiece. I don't know. I'll give it 407. 407. I, I full, will. Certainly in terms of this movie set out to do something and then it accomplished that thing. Yeah. I, I think you have a director fully in control of his own power and actors that serve it. It is a perfect movie. It does not misstep. Whether you agree with all its steps is another question. But yeah. In, in terms of Kubrick did what he wanted to do. I think you got to say this is a 407 a nuclear bomb movie in terms of my enjoyment of it. I yeah, that's a different say, question. I don't know. The funny parts are really funny and the photography is beautiful and there's a lot to like, but it is hellish and interminable. Also, yep. <laughs> Jake, I'll give it on balance 350 nuclear bombs. Jake, same question. 5,428. Wow. You love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when an artist can make me enjoy something in spite of myself. I hate Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> I just hate him. I think I just actually hate him. I enjoyed watching the movie and it's masterfully done and he deserves all the credit. So I give him credit for the total number of active warheads in existence, according to Google. Well, and I'm sorry, but there are people right now that would be happy to get us into a hot war with Russia because they like the kudos of having a little flag in their Twitter. And there are important people like that. There are people in power like that. And so you can argue about where this movie is fair or unfair, but there is a real military industrial complex and it deserves every shot that this movie takes at it. Not to get all political, but at a certain point, we as Americans decided to be pragmatic and driven by fear and not driven by principle. I think we did it when we dropped the bomb on the Japanese. But I think that sort of thing had been in the works for hundreds of years after just war theory started to go out of the conversation. But once you're driven by pragmatism, then you're simply driven by the biggest ego and by the person that can exert their will and by the crazy psycho. Once you abandon principle, you're at the mercy of Dr. Strangelove at the mercy of the nihilists. You just are the Nazis. You just are the Nazis. You're at the mercy of Khan. You give yourself to uh, pragmatism and you think that you're going to do something smart or something patriotic or whatever. And at the end of the day, it's the demons that take over. And that's where we are as a culture. And I think this movie, it has its finger on the pulse of that in a way that just feels increasingly relevant. So... I'm going to bump it up to, I've just talked myself into a full 407 nuclear bombs. I I think this movie is pretty brilliant. It's also, depending on what mood you're in, might not be a very enjoyable watch, but you'll at least get some big laughs if you're a man. If you're a woman, I'd say don't bother. I'll tell you what you can do if you're a woman, though. If you've got money, you can go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. You can support this podcast. You can sign up for a reward level that'll get us to send you a great book like the Sydney Lamette book we talked about, different books about cinema. You'll get your own sort of cinematic education. Uh, men can do this too, by the way. It doesn't matter. We accept both of the sexes. Speaking of both of the sexes, our patron of choice award of awesomeness winner, 
belongs to one of them. The female half, actually. Her name is Jacqueline, and she is an amazing patron choice award of awesomeness. What is it that makes Jacqueline so great, guys? I'm trying to think of a flattering analogy from this movie. <laughs> I'm scrolling through. I'm scrolling through quotes so that I'm ready for the. (laughs) Uh Yeah, I'm on that. And I can't say any of them. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah, I was like, oh, you know, I'll just pull one of these quotes for, and every one of them is like, nope, 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 (laughs) nope, (laughs) definitely not. (laughs) Jacqueline, I think if you were if you were in the room with a crazed general. That wouldn't give the command codes to get the fighters to turn around. You'd figure out a way to talk them down. That's pretty great. He wouldn't go into a bathroom and shoot himself. You'd be more forthright and helpful and charitable than even the good Captain Mandrake was capable of. And that's what makes you our patron choice award of awesomeness. That and the money that you pay to Patreon and our genuine affection for you. Well, I'm glad we could talk about this movie. Until next time, mein Führer, I can walk.